welcome to Fruiting Body Podcast, and I'm your host, Brendan O'Neill. I'm a Canadian expat living in Phuket, Thailand, and Fruiting Body is a medicinal mushroom company. Our intentions of this podcast is to connect with people living on the island and share their stories with you. This is episode 18 with Jamie Raftree. Uh, Jamie is a holistic chef, uh, also can be called the uh, a plant-based chef. Uh, he used to be working at Tenya Pura as the head chef there. Uh, he has a very interesting story from being trained by Gordon Ramsay to working at um, one of the most prestigious French restaurants in France called The Laundry. Um, so we're going to dive deep into his story of how he ended up in Phuket, what he's doing here, and what are the next steps he'll be taking. So we're here today with Jamie Raftery. He is the holistic chef. He worked, uh, I'm, not, I'm not, we'll talk about that. He was working up at, or maybe still is at Tenya Pura. Um, finished, yeah. He was working up at Tenya Pura. Um, people on the island are familiar with this place. Uh, it's up by the airport, and I think it was UW, uh, UWC, or yeah. uh, there's, there's a school up there as well. Um, so we're going to dive right into it as we do. Um, and we like to start with your journey and your story and also understanding your craft and how that all came about. So Jamie, from right from the beginning, let's start with your childhood. Where are you from and where'd you grow up? Okay. Um, okay. It all started back in Glenamaddy, Galway, the West of Ireland. And you grew up on a farm? Yeah. I grew up on a little farm, uh, way out in the West of Ireland, a small little village, a thousand people, Glenamaddy, great little town, uh, Beautiful community, played a lot of sport growing up, a lot of music, very, very small little town. And what were they farming out there at that time? Like farming, um, like what was, was there a main uh, crop? Mainly cattle, sheep, goats, and then um, vegetables. So it's suffice to say you, you, you are a meat eater, meat, you were a meat eater or are you still a meat eater? I was, yeah. Traditionally, you know, growing up in the West of Ireland, it's meat and potatoes. Yeah. And that's it. If you don't have meat on the, on the, plate you're like where's where's my dinner where's the rest so I just grew up you know that was normal you know that you know, drinking milk and eggs and eating meat and all that was normal so it's only over the last six years I've transitioned mm. to a plant-based lifestyle which I, I think we'll, we'll dive right right into that but I I know that all of both of our eight viewers are love, would love to hear. No, now we'll talk about you're doing some uh, online cooking classes, yeah. and uh, we'll get into that in a bit. But I, I also grew up kind of in more not so rural, but still the suburbs of a town outside of Toronto. It was about an hour and a half. Um, was it a typical childhood growing up? You know, you have your smaller public schools, a small town. You're uh, walking, you know, backwards through uh, snow to get to to get to school every day. Or what? What was your childhood look like growing up? Yeah, looking back, great memories of my childhood. A lot of sport. Um, played Gaelic football, Irish Gaelic football, a little bit like Aussie rules. Mm. So I think that was um, a really big part of my childhood. From when I was eight years old to eighteen, it was all about sport, hurling, Gaelic football. Uh, soccer, what we call it, because fo- in Ireland, football to us is Gaelic football. Yep. Gaelic football is a is not a professional sport. People play for their town, they play for their county, and then they represent their county. And it, at- it's famous with uh, females as well, because yeah. I, I knew some Australian females when I lived in, uh, sorry, I, Irish females when I lived in Australia, and they were they were playing Gaelic football in Australia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It yeah, seems like it was huge, quite popular. Huge because yeah. the Irish we travel a lot. We like to travel yeah. from a small country of four million people. I think yeah. we have a lot of influence around the world. Every most towns and cities you go to will have an Irish pub. Uh, so yeah, and where Irish settle, you know, to build community, it's all around Gaelic football and hurling. 
Mm. And it's not all, it's not just about the sport. Of course, it's the sport. It's enjoyable. It's fun. But that brings families together and people together who are living abroad. So the GA is huge in Asia yeah. and America and even Canada too. And this part, like living in these small towns, like, I mean, communities, everything, everybody knows everyone, everybody yeah, yeah. knows everybody's problems and whatnot. Yeah. Now, growing up in your household, we're, and what will connect that to your craft and, and being a chef, was cooking, was being a chef a big part of your, your family and your household? Yes, home cooked. Like my mom, we always had home cooked food. Back then, what was it, 30 years ago, there was no fast food, there was no like convenience food in the supermarket yeah. or that. It was um, a lot of home cooked food, you know, and that's that's what nourished us growing up. And um, my mom's a very good cook. She actually went to chef school after I did. We went to the same culinary college in Galway. And, and th this was in Ireland. In Galway, in Ireland. Okay. Yeah, I went to culinary college when I was about sixteen. Uh, so food is a big part of our household. A big part of growing up, home cooked food and freshly baked cakes and all that kind of stuff. And we had an organic garden outside. So a lot of the, you know, I, we, I think it's very important for a kid. You can see. You know, I didn't appreciate it so much at the time, but now looking back, the memories that created and that connection to with food and where it comes from, you know, where a head of cabbage comes from and where our beef comes was it, from. Was it like that as a child growing up that pretty much everything you were eating at the time was organic? Um, we didn't know what organic was. Then, in, in a sense. But in a sense, yeah. yeah like potatoes we grow outside and cabbage yeah. and peas. And, you know, when they're in season, when they're ready, we eat them. Um and yeah, food, Irish food is very natural, like, you know, good vegetables, good dairy, good grass-fed mm -hmm. beef and so on. And, and this is how your family was, with no pun intended, ma making ends meet. Yeah. Um, selling cattle, selling vegetables mm -hmm. to the local markets. This is how you guys were getting by? Yeah, mainly it was my grandfather's business. Uh, so he he started a farm, a big, huge farm, about 100 acres. Yep. Uh, he also had a wholesale business, so he used to import wholesale ingredients and then he'd have distributions all around Ireland so they'd send a van out to different um, cash and carries around the country so it was a bit of a farm and wholesale business uh, my dad was more the a poet he was a poet and a writer and a teacher as well so he kind of left the farming business and focused more on on his education and, and teaching like at like middle school or he used to teach out in Scandinavia. Oh, so okay. he used to teach about Irish culture in Scandinavia, in Sweden, Denmark, and Norway. So as a kid, we used to be taken out of school and brought around Sweden, Denmark, and Norway when we were like 10, 12, 15 years old. So that, that, that was a really good part. That's where we caught the traveling bug, I would say. Yeah, <laughs> and especially at such a young age to be traveling yeah. and seeing other yeah, parts of the world. Great and experience learning about other currencies and learning a few words of Danish when you're eight or nine years old. Yeah. And we used to take all our homework with us and everything, so we do a little bit of homeschooling. Would you say, was this like a, a, a typical, like traditional Irish family, maybe much different than, it, let's say, if you grew up in a like one of the cities uh, at that time? Meaning like when you were growing up in, in rural Ireland on the farmland, yeah. I mean... Um, it's relying on the community, it's relying on the family, and, and is that kind of what built you to your passion of what you're doing today? I think it is, yeah, down to the roots, you know, rural Ireland is very, is very kind of authentic, very raw, very much about community, and a lot of families live off farming and living off the land. Yeah. yeah. Has it changed much in the past, like, 30 years? Well, yeah, loads, loads. Like How so? Um, Different phases, you know, we had the Celtic Tiger there about 15 years ago when Ireland was booming with property boom and everything. What is the Celtic Tiger? The Celtic Tiger was, Ireland had one of the fastest growing economies okay. in the world about 15, 
15, 20 years ago, um, a lot of property development, a lot of investment in Ireland. So the whole country was booming. The economy was booming. But that all, you know, what goes up must come down. Mm. So when that crashed, uh, so many Irish immigrated. Literally, like, there was no work in rural Ireland. So anyone left in the countryside would have to move to the city if there wasn't much work there. They were off to Australia, uh, USA or Canada. And that's where most of my friends in their early 20s went to. But now they're all starting to come back again, you know, and coming back with knowledge and education and and now Ireland's booming again. Did it severely impact like the agricultural industry in Ireland during after this period? Um, the agricultural industry in Ireland has always been challenging. Without EU subsidies, it's, it's hard to survive. Mm. You know, without subsidies to support cattle farming and sheep farming and dairy industry, it'd be very difficult to survive. It's a very laborious, um, you know, farming practice yeah. is very laborious. There's a lot of work and a lot of expense that goes into it. And then the profit you get for your beef and your lamb and it's so small. And margins, for and you know? kid, kids growing up and especially in the age of social media, yeah, they see that there's know. easier, quicker <laughs> opportunities. Everyone's looking for quick, <laughs> fast, let's yeah, go. Yeah, and that's it, you know, so... The agricultural industry, yeah, there's not, it's, um, I think it's changing a lot now. Mm. And also I think with, um, you know, there's a reduction in beef consumption and so on, or yeah. and dairy consumption. So Ireland are very progressive in their sustainability drive as part of EU as well. So there's a lot more incentives now and a lot more grants and a lot more subsidies to help farming lands in rural Ireland yeah. to progress to more sustainable practices that are actually sustainable and, and viable for the so would you say they, they're evolving from where they were before yeah. in terms of the sustainability? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and was what was the kind of the push for that to, to occur? Was it just the trends of going on in the world and, and just that, that movement of sustainability? Or did they kind of take it upon themselves to I think, be a pioneer in I that? I think an accumulation of being part of the EU as well. Oh. And the future, like, you know, for climate and environment and everything. Ireland has always had a great tradition of agriculture since the famine times. Like Ireland produces enough food for 50 million people. We're a country of 4 million, so mm. we export a lot of food, mainly um, dairy. beef and dairy and, and cheese and, and that. Um, so it is a very important sector in Ireland. So the Irish government are pushing forward. You know, they're proactive and they're forward-thinking in, in making this sustainable and viable for the future. Um, and part of the EU as well and the support. Yeah, I had I had a friend. I was living in China for five, six years. Um, and I had a friend from Ireland, and he I can't I can't remember the name of the company he was working for, but it was an Irish company in China, and they were uh, I believe they were selling they were producing the milk in Ireland and selling it to all the Chinese schools around China. Yeah, and yeah. He they were booming like yeah. this industry was just doing phenomenal, and he was doing great as well. Yeah. I think he's back in Spain now, but um. Um, to jump to jump ahead, so I was uh, I heard that kind of your first taste for your craft started when you were fourteen years old. How how did that yeah. all begin? Uh, oh, that was yeah, that's going back a while. So I was big into sport and music. Oh, just that was ten years ago. Yeah, that was my thing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I always like being creative. You yeah, know, whether it's music or sport or something, I wasn't one for sitting in a classroom and and just doing a lot of admin and doing a lot of studying. I was more active in that. So cooking always appealed to me. And I remember I saw a past student came into school one time and did a, a pastry production kind of demonstration. So I looked at that and I was like, wow, that's amazing. You know, it looks so cool. She takes these raw ingredients and she applies these skills. And then it's like you got this like beautiful pastry or cake at the end. 
So that kind of, that sparked my interest in the whole culinary area. Yeah. And I, well, I was an interest in school. I had my ears pierced. I was playing in a band. I'd bleached hair and I kind of lived rebelling a little bit. So I thought, okay, I know I, I'm going to leave school, you know, I'm going to be a chef. It kind of, I just had that feeling, had that desire at 15 years old to, to go and do it. So after you see uh, your, your, a friend or a classmate brought in this pastry, uh, 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 he, he was uh, showing how to make, make it. It was like a presentation. Yeah, yeah. From there, how quickly did you realize this is going to be my career? Because it seems like even from a young age, you've jumped right into it right away. Yeah, that's what I do. I jump yeah. right in, figure it out. On yeah. The way. Uh, first, I started carpentry. So I left and my cousin was a carpenter. So I, I thought I want, you know, because carpentry is very similar. You kind of take a raw product, you apply your skill and your craft and you have a finished product that you can gift or, or show someone. So after a couple of months doing that and up on three-story buildings and carrying rafters up and cut and bruised, I said, it's not for me. I don't no. see myself doing this. So then I just got it. I, I always like cooking, but I had no experience from, I had no education from school to to get into school. I didn't do any of my leaving exams or anything. Uh, you, you did not graduate high school? No, 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 I decided to leave early. And you went into carpentry by not graduating. You're doing this carpentry and you yeah. decide that's not for you. How did you decide to go into, and what would, I'm not sure the term, would it be like culinary school or? Yeah, culinary, culinary arts, a, culinary de a degree arts. in culinary arts. I went to the. When was that like a ha moment? Okay, I'm, I'm at a carpentry and I'm going to pursue this. It was kind of my, as well, it was kind of my last chance. It was kind of the only thing I could do as well, mm -hmm. because you didn't need a leaving cert education for the, if to do chefing, you needed some experience. So I went into a local restaurant in Galway and got Asked him, could I wash dishes? Well, I get some work experience. So I worked as a kitchen porter for six months, washing pots and pans in a busy hotel restaurant. And that got me the experience to get into college. And then, and then I applied for college and I got in. So I was 16 at professional college, doing a degree in culinary arts. Were you the youngest kid at that time was, in that I was, college? I was two years younger than anyone. Yeah, yeah, two or three years. About 120 people started in, the, in first year. I think only about 40 graduated. Uh, so that was two years at college and that was, you know, I had, I, and essentially leaving school was one of the best decisions I ever made because it gave me that extra drive an extra kind of burning desire to make it work, to make it happen. And, and chefing is not the easiest industry to, to go into. Yeah, it's very competitive and there is, I mean, obviously there's the, the craft style and, and um, you need to be good. You need to be almost, you need to be an artist in, in a sense. Yeah, it's kind of a mix between artistry and craft, mm. like art is it is very skillful in that but it's a craft as well you can't sit on youtube and watch it and learn yeah. how to do it. you got to get in on the trenches and work hard and and graft and shed blood sweat and tears for for good chefs to to learn to to learn your craft so it's a do nice you, blend of both do you think you took a lot of that from your father being a poet and him being an artist as well in that yeah, sense yeah yeah and a, a different wider look at things yeah i think i've i've been influenced a lot by him by both my mom and my dad mm. yeah and then, so you're studying, it's just a two-year course. You're able to graduate. Yeah. Um, I was listening that you, uh, one of the questions they asked you is, what is your five-year plan? You said, yeah, I'm not thinking five years ahead. Come on, it's too far. <laughs> so at that, at that point in time, did that principle apply at that period of your life in the sense that you were not looking five years ahead? You were, I'm going to graduate. I'm going to do two years. I'm going to jump into my next job and let's just yeah. see where those, you know, stepping stones go. So the yeah. question more is, and it's a bit long winded, yeah. what was the next step for you and, and uh, where did you see yourself going? Well, I had, I had this burning desire because I'd left school early. I had this burning desire. I had to make it work. And 
in Chef College, we get sent out to do work placements. <clears throat> I didn't want to go to a, like a, a crappy hotel or restaurant and just get bad experience and so on. So I said, send me somewhere good. So they had this chef out in Connemara that they hadn't sent anyone for a couple of years, way out in the west of Ireland. They said um, they had a few complaints from students. It's a little bit hard to work there, but the chef is really good. I said, send me there. <laughs> send me there. So, and this, that man is still my good friend to this day, Chef Jean Azri from Malaysia. Well, shout out to him. <laughs> shout out Chef G. He's been my first mentor. And I think that's a very yeah. important point. I think we do need mentors in whatever craft we're in. And Chef G took me under his wing, he could say, at a 17-year-old little tearaway, like, you know, not doing, not, you know, going off partying and doing all that sort of stuff. Yeah. But he kind of kept me on track. And the food he was doing, the inspiring food he was doing, I was like, wow, you know, I'd never seen anything like that. He worked on the QE2 cruise ship, so he had... <clears throat> You know, he had a very diverse yeah. culinary repertoire and I saw all these Asian ingredients for the first time ever. And that was the first time I was inspired with food. So that kind of ignited some a burning desire to, you know, learn from him and go out and continue on from there. Did you have <clears throat> anything in mind in terms of um, what your specialty would be as a chef or were you just an open book? Mm. I had this like, goal and dream just to be the best chef I could, to be the best chef in Ireland, to be the best okay. at what I do. That was, I sort of set myself that goal. And I think having that goal, like looking back now, it's a bit ambitious and a little, you know, but I think it's good to have goals like that, you know, whatever age you're at. Uh, so I set that my goal and then learning from G was like absorbing all this knowledge. Um, and then it went on from there and I got a, I needed a break. I needed to get out of the West of Ireland, you know, it was, uh, Partying a little bit too much as well, a you're still, you're student, still young, you're still 18, 18 and, and like, you know. And, and that, that everyone is well aware that's in the restaurant business that yeah. that chef life, it can get a bit crazy and hectic because it's, it yeah. kind of aligns with the nightlife as well, yeah. right? It, it attracts very uh, creative people, you know, yeah. people who, yeah, it, it attracts, it, it attracts a very eclectic mix of people. I was working in a hotel in the West of Ireland when I was 17, the Rock Lynn living in a staff house and we had about 10 or 12 different nationalities living there. So that's yeah. a really like melting pot of different cultures and partying and everything. But I needed a break, you know, to figure out what I want to do for the rest of my career. So I went out to work in a ski chalet in Switzerland and plonked myself out there for a couple of years. How did you decide to go there? How did that come I love skiing. My dad took me skiing in Val Thorons and I was like, wow, I fell in love with it. It's just such an amazing, like the atmosphere and the Alps and the, the um, you know, the whole mountain so, fresh air but you you've you went to that location before you kind of you're you're looking for that change and you started looking for different ski resorts maybe around switzerland france or was yeah. it very specific well i i came back from skiing i'm like i want to do this more yeah. i can't afford to go on ski holidays all the time so yeah. let's let's go and work there so i applied for look for different jobs through agencies and found a, a job with a really nice family an english dutch family they ran a ski chalet in morzine morzine avoria mm. one of the largest ski areas in the world uh, covers parts of Switzerland and France. Uh, so I went out there for two years and had an incredible two seasons. Learned how to ski, did heli skiing, and like, we had really cool guests coming out, staying with us every week. So it was a nice party atmosphere. I do, I get to like design. It was the first time I but ever. But it was a young, this was a young age. You, you, at this point, you're what, you're 20, 22? Or? I was only 19. Only 19. Only 19, yeah. I'd finished college. Yeah. That's when I just finished college. It was my first job after, after culinary college. So you're growing up pretty quick. I mean, you're, you're, yeah. you're getting, um, you're kind of going through the ringer at a young age instead yeah. of 
you know, most college grads, they don't even start their first job till they're yeah. 21, 22 at yeah. a university. It was quite nice at the time. I remember this is before Facebook. It's going yeah. back a while. I remember to check my email. I had to go to an internet cafe in town and it takes like half an hour to log on and all that. So it was like being above the clouds in the Alps with no media, no telephone or nothing. And like with a great group of people we stayed with. So give me that time out. You know, there's a lot of time when you're sitting on the chairlift no no smart no smartphone to look through so you're like in your environment and you're thinking you know is that time to kind of reflect about you know what i've learned so far and where i want to go with the rest of my career can you say from each experience as we jump along through your story is there a takeaway that you could uh say that's what i got from this this is what i got from like that's what i got from my experience uh in ireland this is what i got from my experience in in switzerland and how those tools accumulated on your your belt yeah, yeah, it's a good question. I, I see it as an adventure. Uh, I remember someone saying to me when I was working in Clifton in the Rock Lane, they said, life is like a book. You stay in the same place, you only read one page. And that kind of stuck with me. So every different adventure and different job I take, I saw it as like a new chapter, a new a new experience. And I've traveled the world a lot on different culinary adventures and different jobs and everything. And every time I go and plonk myself there, you know, it's it's hard to leave your family, leave your friends behind but it's like, I always look on what I can, what doors it opens up, what experiences I can have and, and what I can learn like con- from Consciously it. you're thinking yeah. about if I'm going to this new location, cause I, we'll get to that and you've jumped, you've been around the world. Uh, I mean, now you're in Phuket, yeah. you've been to India, but we'll get there. Um, when you arrive at these places, are you settling in or are you immediately thinking where to next? It's good. It's survival. You know, like even I went out to open an Irish bar in Hartford when I was 21 I went out for three months, one of the largest Irish bars in the East Coast of America. And I remember just landing there. This and is like, uh, Connecticut, right? Connecticut, yeah. yeah, Hartford, Connecticut. And, you know, that just springs to mind as in like, okay, you're in a new place, you don't know anybody. Um, and it forces you to like be open to meet new people and to start conversations with people and to, and to you know, to adapt to the environment and the climate you're in. And I think it's a really good skill to to develop, you know, to be out of your comfort zone and be somewhere you don't know people because then it, um, it's... Uh, yeah, and what were you doing in Connecticut? You're working, maybe I missed that point, you're working at uh, a restaurant at this point, a hotel? Yeah, it's my good friend's brother. He opened, a, he turned an old 1800s bank, an old bank from about 200 years ago into an Irish bar in okay. Hartford, downtown Hartford. So I went out as the consultant chef to set it up. So I went out and designed all the menus and trained the team, a full team of Mexican chefs. I was only about 21 or 22 at the time. Um, One of my first head chef's jobs. Uh, Really great experience, you know, being in America and running an Irish bar and not knowing how to do it, you know, figuring it out on the way. And this is your kind of first taste of the U.S. as well. Yeah, it was my first taste of America. And and when you you enter an Irish bar, bar or pub in the, in the U S I mean, sometimes are you completely appalled or can they pass the test? It depends who's running it. Depends, it depends if you, who's owning it yeah. and the welcome you get Irish hospitality, Irish bars are, I think they're very much about the hospitality, how they make you feel welcome in a place and like the, the banter and the conversations mm. and, and all that. Yeah. Have you been to O'Hara's? I yet? have. Yeah. Yeah. Very I, impressed. I, I like it there. Very impressed. It's it feels, authentic. It's yeah. authentic and it feels, um, it, we're on this island, but I find yeah. when you go in there, I feel like I'm in the city again. Yeah, like it, it's yeah. it's very uh, warm and comforting, yeah. and and yes, the the owners they're they're very uh, hospitable as yeah. well. Yeah. So you're you're in uh, you're in you're in Connecticut at this point. You've 
it was more of a consulting job and it was, yeah. were you acting as the head chef or were you just kind of setting it up as a, a one-off and then planning to move on elsewhere? Yeah, setting it up as a one-off. I was actually working in a two Michelin star restaurant in England at the time who closed for a year's refurbishment. So I was on a year kind of in between on a retainer for a year. So this project came up in Hartford kind of at the right time. So I just went out for a, a three month consultancy project to get it all up and running um, and to hire the executive chef as well. So good experience running a, a team of Mexican chefs and learning from them and how they work and everything. And, and it was the executive chef that he end, they, he was Mexican as well. Uh, he was American. Yeah, I had to hire the chef. So that was another good experience, you know, yeah. developing relationships with suppliers and hiring head chefs and really calling them out. Yeah. Because it's easy to lie on a CV and say you have all this experience. But then when you ask them about a dish or a management question or something, they kind of flutter a little bit. So just trying to get them a good head chef. And at the same over. same time you were still working at, at a, a, a two Michelin star in, sorry, in the UK. Yeah. Yeah. Um, for a lot of people that don't understand that I, I'm, I, my understanding of, well, the Michelin stars are actually coming from the Michelin tires. That's the sponsorship. Right. Yeah, yeah. And it has to do something along the lines with travel, something to do yeah. with the tires and travel and how pe people got one star, two star, Three star. Are you able yeah. to go into detail of like what is what is first of all what is a Michelin star and what is the difference between a one, two, and a three, and how do you obtain that? Yeah, well, it all started is it's a French tire. Yes, and it started as a as a tour guide when people are to promote their their tires. So when people are traveling around France, it's like where can you go to eat? So they'd write a guide of restaurants, and then they'd they would assess them on the standard and quality of the restaurant, whether it's a one, two, or a three. One is really good restaurant, two is exceptional, and three is well worth a detour. So you have to go the extra route to go, but yeah. it's worth it. And it kind of simplifies down to that. But Michelin Guide is it's like an awarding body that they have inspectors who come and eat in your restaurant. They won't tell you they're coming. They don't get paid for it. They pay for their meal. They'll come and they'll go and they'll assess you and you don't even know they've been. Mm. And that's what makes it so reputable is because you can't buy yourself a Michelin star. It's it takes, authentic. It takes years to mm. win it. So a lot of chefs use that Michelin star guiding process as a way to, you know, determine what league they're in, so to say. And and this restaurant you're at, it's, it's a two Michelin star, so obviously it's... Yeah, it was the it, first Michelin star I worked in. I, yeah. I skipped straight over the one star Michelin yeah. and went straight into the two Michelin star restaurant. And, and what, were, what were you doing there? What was so the name was, of the restaurant? That was, just going back, that was when I finished at the French Alps. Um, I met a guest who, when I was working in the ski resort, and he came out to stay with us in the ski chalet, and he actually had a hotel in the UK that was just open, and they wanted to win a Michelin star. So he invited, he offered me the job there when I finished in the ski resort. Yep. So that was kind of the, how I got from France to England. And then I worked there for a year and that's when I started learning about Michelin stars. I hadn't even heard anything about it from Ireland. We didn't have any Michelin star restaurants at the time. So I started, that's when I got introduced to Gordon Ramsay and learned about his two and three Michelin star restaurants. Uh, I was living in the Southwest of England. And what, what year is this? Are we in this at this is point? 2002. 2002. 2002, 2003. Okay. Yeah, just at the turn of the century. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't seem that long ago. And I heard about Michael Keynes, a two Michelin star chef, and he was actually my second mentor. He was running uh, one of the top restaurants in the UK. He had two Michelin stars. He actually had a car accident when he was about 25. He lost his right arm, and he went on to win two Michelin stars with one arm. 
completely incredible and he's been an inspiration and a huge guiding force in my career to have worked with someone like that and to be his, you know, to be a commie chef in his kitchen. Uh, so that was my second mentor. And I worked, I was, I was just gone 21, 22. So mm. that was my first real like jump in at the deep end of Premier League. And what was your kind of biggest takeaway from, from that experience and working with him? Uh, perseverance, commitment, dedication, teamwork, honesty. There's so much you learn working in a Michelin star kitchen. You know, if you're lying to your head chef or your teammates, you get it, you go down, you know, and you don't go down on your own. Your whole team goes down. Mm. So it builds like, um, you know, you got to be honest. You got to, you know, be disciplined. You got to show up for work. Even if you're sick, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of commitment. A lot I mean, of values. I'm not sure. Maybe you agree with the statement, but you could be the best chef in the world and the best restaurant in the world. But if your character is shit, you're, yeah. that restaurant's not going to survive. Would you see that in restaurants as well? Just where, you know, maybe egos take over? Yeah, yeah. Well, throughout my whole career, like, you know, you do need a big ego. You do need a strong ego to carry you through as a head chef and win Michelin stars because you need to be self-driven, determined. You need to be like single-minded on your goal and your focus because if you have any, show any sign of weakness at all, you'll kind of get... You get eaten up a little bit, you know. It's like saying too many cooks in the kitchen. Too many cooks in the kitchen, or essentially the head chef is yeah. maybe an analogy would be he's the he's the the captain that needs to sail that ship. You yeah, can't you have, have you, you can't have five captains trying no, to. You got to instill confidence yeah. in your team, and you've got to have a certain fear level as well. Not a fear where you scare people that they're scared to come into work, but a, a fear level where if you make a mistake and you don't acknowledge it or, or own up to it, you'll get in trouble okay. and you'll be out the door. And it's that like discipline level and very firm, but fair. Michael's approach is very firm, but fair. Like I'm a great friend of his to this day and I've worked for him for seven years. Uh, very fair, but I've got some serious like stories, stories of yeah. where like, you know, crazy, like, <laughs> you know, but you all, you shouting and roaring and in, in service and things being thrown around. But then at the end of service, we all sit around and have a beer and have a laugh about it. You know, at the time yeah. it's very serious because there's guests who are coming to, spend like 200 pounds on a meal and they have fancy wine and they've been like waiting for this experience for, for months, maybe years. It's a once in a lifetime experience to dine at a restaurant like that. And then if some commie chef makes a mistake and cooks, burns something and tries to serve it, you know, that kind of compromises the, the reputation. Dealing with ego and obviously you've dealt with some popular chefs and you, you were talking about Gordon Ramsay. I mean, is he the head honcho? Is he the, the biggest ego you've, you've experienced in your industry? Uh, good question. Like, Gordon's a great leader. He's a brilliant leader. And he wouldn't have built an empire of restaurants around the world and done, has achieved what he has without being an incredible leader. And certainly, yeah, he's a big ego. But then, you know, it's, you, you need that as well. You know, you know, to go on TV and do all he's done over in America on Hell's Kitchen. But he backs it up with he is probably one of the best at what he does. And he has some great team members that he looks after and he's built a huge empire and a huge team behind him. And he would not be the success he is today without the team behind him. Um, and he was, tra he was training you specifically or at a school or yeah. what was it uh, at, a, at a kitchen or how did that all work? So my time at Michael Keynes in Gidley Park when I was uh, throughout my time there, I did a Gordon Ramsay scholarship. So Gordon opened up a competition in the UK to open it to chefs under the age of 25 years old in the industry. And you go and you do a mystery basket competition 
And then if you win the semi-final, you get to the final. If you win the final, you get a lot of prizes and you get to work in Gordon's kitchens around the world. Yep. So I did that for five years, every year. Wow. Every year I did it. Uh, Just trying to get in. Try, but it was a way yeah. that, trying to win it, like that was my goal. And yeah. Around 21, I set myself that goal that I want to win the Gordon Ramsay Scholarship. And it wasn't so much about just winning it. It was the journey of getting there and all the skills I developed on the way. So each year I did it and failed miserably. Most years I learned, I learned a lot, you know, and I learned more in the years that I failed than, than the other years. Cause then I go back to work at Gidley Park or I go back to work and I, I used to work my days off in other restaurants, trying to learn, trying to develop my weak points. Yep. And I get feedback from Gordon at all the competitions and his head chefs. And it's a, you know, I'd know where my weak points are. And we all have weak points as human beings and whatever craft we're in. But I think the more we acknowledge them weak points and, you know, it's, it's normal. You're improving year we're by improving year. Them. You improve them and improve them. So then I went back to final year, the Gordon Ramsay scholarship, and I knew I was going to win it. I had it in, I visualized it. And I went back and I won it. I cooked his most three incredible hours cooking I had in my life. What were your dishes? Do you remember? Yeah, I do. I remember them completely. Yeah. So it was autumn time. We had squab pigeon from France. We had a uh, pumpkin soup for a starter. And then we had a pate breton for dessert. It's like a shortbread biscuit dessert. And then we had a whole mystery basket of ingredients. So we're only told what we're going to cook 30 minutes before we go on stage, a live audience, cameras, TVs, videos. Otherwise you have no idea. They're just kind of, the, the, even the ingredients are hidden at this point. They're all hidden behind. No one knows what they are. Yeah. We're going on mm -hmm. with 30 minutes before the the competition. Do, do you decide or sorry, they're telling you what to cook or do you have they, to come up with the, the concept from just the ingredients? They give us the ingredients. Uh, the dessert was set. We had a set dessert to make. Yeah. And then with a mystery basket, we cook whatever starter and main course we want. Mm. We've got 30 minutes to plan and prepare it in a private room. And then it's like get on stage and cook. We all got our private little kitchen unit and that's when the adrenaline kicks in. And it's like, okay, this is it. Showtime. Yeah. And, and the planning uh, stage in, in terms of the, like the creativity and the art behind it, you're working with two people, three people, or you're all by yourself? Just me. Just you. Nowhere to hide. Nowhere to Just hide. Just me. Okay. No to blame it on. It's all my responsibility. And you have no, no one to bounce ideas off or anything no, like that? No, it's all there, but I had yeah. the five years previous to bounce ideas. Yeah. You know, when you learn your pastry craft, you learn how to make a good sauce, you learn your butchery skills, you learn your fishmongering, you learn your larder, you learn everything. And you have it in here mm. and then you just got to trust yourself, trust your instinct and your self-confidence and, and all that and just, just make it happen. And by the fifth year, did Gordon take notice to, hey, this is this kid's fifth year back? Yeah, they probably just gave it to me as, okay, let's give it to him. <laughs> he's, he's persevered enough. He's passed the test. Uh, but I got to know like a, a lot of great chefs, Angela Hardnett, Mark Askew, Mark Sargent, Marcus Waring, all these top chefs in the UK who are Gordon's head chefs in his empire. These were the judges throughout the five years. So I was getting feedback from them. I used to go and work for free in their restaurants in London. I used to check into a hostel on my two weeks holiday from Gidley Park, stay in a hostel and work in Gordon Ramsay's restaurant for free from six in the morning till midnight. Just for the no pay. networking and experience. Just for the experience to be a fly on the wall in restaurants like that. Yeah. And, to, and also make connections. I made some great connections naturally. You know, you kind of gel with some people and you build up a connection and, and it's very important now. Like I can still contact these chefs to this day. Uh, but great experience working in all these restaurants for free. And that's how I, I learned. And, and what was your, your, like your biggest takeaway from that? What, was it a connection? Was it just the experience? Did it lead to anywhere that was, you know, um, a, not just a pivot point, but maybe a milestone in your career from that? Yeah. Yeah. They, they all opened doors. Each one opened a door. 
just going back to when I was about 21, that's when I, I first read the French Laundry cookbook. Um, one of my first head chefs gave it to me as a gift and his first cookbook like this that I read. And I was like, wow, this, this, this place is incredible. The stories, the philosophy, the ingredients, the finesse, the art. And I was only about 21 at a time at the time. And I was looking at this book and I thought, okay, I'm going to work here. And it was the number one restaurant in the world at the time. And I just set it as my intention and as my goal that I will work here one day. Um, so I had that kind of at the back of my mind. So going through the Gordon Ramsay scholarship and making all these connections and developing my skills all led me to where I wanted to get to be strong enough, like as in have the skills to be able to work in the number one restaurant in the world and then to have some connections that can get me in or give me some good, like give me a reference to, to get into this restaurant. And what, so did you mention, what is the name of the restaurant? So that restaurant's called the French Laundry in Napa Valley, Oh, it's called California. the French, okay. Yeah. The French, I thought it was like the, you said that was the name of the cookbook, but it's, yeah, it's also the, the name the of the, too, the yeah. restaurant. A very okay. famous cookbook, the French Laundry okay. cookbook. I, I think it came out in, yeah, like 20 years ago. Mm. Still very famous to this day. And yeah, that's Yeah, it's, so your goal was to be able to work there, but first you still had to go through the, the scholarship program. Yeah, um, I didn't have to, but I, I sent a few letters to the French yeah. Laundry, heard nothing back. So then I realized, okay, maybe like, maybe I, yeah. <laughs> I need to develop a few skills before. So I'm what was the work. connecting point to that? Um, just to kind of go through that, you, you went into the Gordon Ramsay program because you've won yeah, the scholarship and then you were able to go to the French Laundry? Yeah, so part of the Gordon Ramsay scholarship, the winning prize was I did a scholarship with Gordon uh, in his restaurant in London, yep. Paris and New York for the following year. So I trained in all his restaurants there. Um, and also having left Michael Caine's at Gidley Park, Michael had sent a few chefs to the French Laundry before. So he already had a good connection with Thomas Keller and like a good, you know, if, if Michael can recommend a chef to come here, we can take them because there's that trust built up. So it took me years to build up that trust with Michael that he would recommend me. Mm. So when I finished at the Gidley Park, that was kind of my gateway to get into the French Laundry. So then I contacted the executive chef at the French Laundry, had a letter from Michael, had a recommendation, a reference from Gordon Ramsay. And then I was actually out in New York training in Gordon's restaurant at the time. So I said, I can fly out to California and do my, do my work interview. Mm. And, and that year program with Gordon, before you, you're, you're jumping over to the, the French Laundry, it's, it's basic. Is it paid or like, what does the scholarship entail? Uh, not paid. I won a prize. I won 5,000 pounds. I won a car. I won an oven for my employer. I won every one of Gordon's books personally yeah. signed to me. And then I won an all expenses paid internship at his restaurants in London. Okay. So I, yeah, York. my point of the question was like, you're, you're still getting income while you're going through the scholarship so you can at least yeah, survive. Right? A little bit. Yeah. yeah. And I worked with Michael was opening a few restaurants around the UK at the time, the abode hotel group. So I helped with the opening of a few of them and did the Gordon Ramsay internships kind of throughout that year and did my interview at the French Laundry and then sorting out my visa and all that. So it was a really nice interlude year of, of winning the competition and then getting set for my next, next big adventure out to the, out to California. And at this point uh, you're 25, 26. Yeah. 24, 25. And yeah. have you still found, found uh, your specialty or you're still trying to discover that or could you, was your ego, uh, was it large at that point in time where you said, this is what I'm going to do. This is my specialty. This is how I see myself as a chef. Or were you still finding yourself? Still finding myself. Yeah. I was still following, you know, I, I was learning from Michael. I was learning from Thomas Keller. I still, I knew I still had a lot to learn. 
So I was still developing my skills. And I think before you become a leader or before you can like run your own restaurants and develop your own style of cuisine, you've got to learn from the best. Yeah. So I was learning from Gordon, Thomas, Michael, and Corey Lee. I went out to Denmark and worked in restaurants for free out there with Rasmus Kofood and, and chefs like that. So I was like in the place of learning. And ego-wise, like kitchens I worked in, I was very much like quiet. You know, I'd, like, I saw a lot of egos that worked with me and they're like all very loud. And I was always like, okay, just like, Mark your work with excellence. And that was all my saying. You don't have to tell everybody you're good at what you do. Just put the plate of the food on the table. Let them taste it. You don't have to, you don't have to convince anybody. Mm. So my saying was like, you, you know, personally, it was just mark my work with excellence. Um, and kind of transcend, transcend that sort of ego, ego kind of egotistical approach in the kitchen. Because no one likes a chef running around yeah. telling everyone how good they are and showing off and all this sort of stuff. But when you're... Would you consider yourself at that age still young in your profession? Yeah, yeah. And and when you're 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 kind of you're still learning your craft. Yeah. Um, did you have your? D does every chef at that age, when they're young in their pr profession, have their artistic touch, or is it still like they're taking ideas from maybe their mentors and and adapting them and trying? I don't want to use the word copying them, but yeah. not getting as creative as they could be. Yeah. Yeah, very good question. I think with uh, there's, there's very few original recipes. Like we're always, whether you call it stealing or borrowing or getting inspiration or getting ideas, we're always taking that from other chefs. And even now, like on on internet or social media, like I see them as little triggers for inspiration. I might see something another chef does, and I think, oh, that's nice. But I'll incorporate it into my recipe and like. Not steal it, but it's more like influence, more like you kind tweak of, a few things, a few it. techniques yeah. and, and yeah. you try to make it your own. Yeah. And is that, is that like the overall, like as a chef, is that kind of how it evolves? Food is evolving in this sense where certain dishes, they, you take on of what has worked well, you tweak it, maybe you change the technique, you add ingredients. And then from there, that trickles on and snowballs uh, down the down the road. Yeah, there is there's a lot to it. I think developing your old style, there is there is a lot to it, and it really does depend on where you are and the team you're in and who you're cooking for as well. Um, like at the French Laundry, we used to all write the menu together. We used to all sit around the table at the end of service, and we used to write the menu for the next day. The menu changed every single day at three Michelin star restaurants. Wow. Every single day we'd sit around, we'd have a list from the gardener on what he's going to harvest the next morning. We'll have a list from what fish and meat are ordered from the, because we need to pre-order them. And then we'll sit around as like seven or eight chefs and we'll design the menu for the next day. And that puts, you know, imagine that collaboration of like putting your ideas together because we can all learn from each other. We can all share ideas, share knowledge, and very much like an open thing, like you, you share all your knowledge and ideas with other chefs. And then in return, you're kind of open to receiving more. And that kind of ripples then into like having this creative mindset. Yeah, well, but for, for a three Michelin star restaurant, that's a lot of risk they're taking every day. A lot of risk, but the chefs they, that go through that place is worth it. Because imagine like in England, we used to have a menu that would be the same for three months. Yeah. And you come into work every day, you know, what you got. You, it's all timed. You kind of go on robotic mode. And you know what you need to do every day and you kind of like, you lose that sense of like creativity and like out of your comfort zone as to, okay, I got four VIPs today. We're doing a menu I've never done before. And it really puts you in this zone where you have to sink or swim. 
And there were so many days at the French Laundry where I, my skin is crawling thinking about it, but I didn't know how I was going to survive, really. Do you have an example of a specific day where you can remember, whether it was sink or swim, but something you can recall of like, holy shit, that was a hell of a day. It took me two months to get trained up in my section. I was the meat cook there in a small specialist section. So it took a long time to get trained there. And the menu changes every single day. So each day is different. And it's only by the end of service, you're figuring out your timings and everything. And that's hard enough getting this, the tasting menu down to a T. But then when you get VIPs that come in, and the policy with VIPs is that every VIP that sits at the table will get a different starter. So you'll have a table of four, and they'll have four different soups, four different main courses, and you've got to desi- design that menu on the day. So just um, like I remember going out to look at um, Victoria, uh, Victoria Beckham and David Beckham's menu. It was on the wall, and I just looked at all the dietary requirements and all the like, you know, special VIP notes and everything. And I'm already like a hundred percent of capacity. And then you've got to design this other menu as well on the spot. But what that does, it, it, it kind of makes teamwork, brings teamwork together because you can't do it all yourself. And you have to draw on your team members to support you and your sous chefs and everybody works together like clockwork to, to make it all happen at the end of the day. Cause no one wants to see you sink and drown but they want you pushed to your limits. So at the French Laundry, it's that very fine balance between mm. pushed to your absolute limits of you don't know how you're going to survive between like, you know, of it's getting it to that level. And were you always able to stay above water? Did you ever have any horrific days where just it, the menu did not work? Yeah, there's sometimes you make a mistake. You know, we're all human. Yeah. I remember overcooking a piece of venison on the pass one day and I sent it up. I knew in my heart I shouldn't have sent it up. But when you're so busy and you're at that point where you're like, you're just about swimming and you send it up, you, you kind of, sometimes it might get past some not. It didn't get past the chef and he saw it and he knew I made that decision. Yeah. But it's, it's owning up to that decision. <clears throat> I, you know, it was a horrible 10, 20 minutes, but getting that shouting and a, I wouldn't call it abuse, but getting that annihilation or that like um, talking to by the head chef yeah. It really puts you in a place where you can either cry and walk away and moan about it, mm-hmm. or you can actually compose yourself and shake it off and get back to what you're doing and get back to cooking and catch up with all the tables you've missed behind. So it really tests you, like in a restaurant like that, it really tests you to your limits. And I think surviving and working in a restaurant like that has, has really um, kind of given me some extra confidence in other challenges that come my way. And thinking like, you know, having that self-confidence in yourself that you can and figure was, out a way. Was it a big team you were working with at this restaurant? Or, and how many, how many, uh, there's one head chef, how many chefs and how many seats um, uh, are in, are in the French laundry? There's a 50 seater, a 40 seater restaurant, but we'll do about 70 covers a service with two sittings. And there's about 50 or 60 chefs. So Thomas is the patron. He lives next door. And then he'll have an executive chef. Corey Lee was my head chef at the time. And then there's about eight sous chefs and a whole team of chef de parties. I was the chef de party. And then we have a whole team of commie chefs who work in a separate kitchen. And then we have a team of interns who work there. So it's almost a chef per table at yeah, this sense. Yeah, but the, yeah, the attention in detail. I because guess. everything needs to be so customized that if you don't have a chef per table, you're- So much precision, yeah. you know, so yeah. much, so much precision and everything. And it's a very fine art, you know, of, 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 and Thomas calls it like a, it's like a symphony orchestra. He calls it like a dance. Thomas can walk into the restaurant and, or to the kitchen and he knows if everything is running right. It's like clockwork. Everybody works in synchronicity and in unison. 
and the communication and the teamwork and everything. And he can just tell by the atmosphere that it's all running good. Mm. But then if one person makes a mistake, it kind of ripples on. The timing of the whole restaurant just ripples on and can cause other, you know, other people have to counterbalance that. Yeah, it's like a, a rowboat or something. Yeah. Everyone has to be in sync, yeah, uh, be synchronized. Yeah. Otherwise it's just. And when it's all in synchronicity, it's beautiful mm. experience to be involved in that, like, you know, symphony orchestra of flow, flow state. Yeah. We like we'd, have, we'd have 70 covers for a service and think of the average person will have 10 courses. So that's 700 plates of food. You've got to yeah. get out in four hours. The you dishwasher's know. got some, he's got some work to do They've back there. Team, but that all yeah. runs like clockwork as well. Yeah. You know, and even, yeah, it's a beautiful like, experience to be, to be in that environment and to feel it is amazing. But have you had an environment since you, you've worked there, or no. that was kind of the pinnacle of like this this flow state, yeah. synch, uh, synchronized uh, working environment. Yeah, and that's it. Like nothing has come close to that since. And in a way, that's been a letdown in a way because everywhere I worked after that, I tried to find that mm. flow and I couldn't. And I, I went on to be a head chef after the French Laundry for four years. And I always try, I knew I'd never be as good as the French Laundry. You You're trying to recreate you can, it. You can recreate some elements yeah. of it. And I did always, I tried to introduce some elements of my, of the organization into, into the kitchens I was running, but it never hit that spot. Why was that? What was the, the, the key factor that allowed them to be, to have that flow state or, uh, again, the analogy was the orchestra and that environment to to flow this way that why could that not be applied to other restaurants in which you try to recreate it? What was the, the question is, what is the key factor that they had? Was it's it the level of attention to detail and organization? And French Laundry was developed over 20 years. You know, it's taken them a long time to get to where they are yeah. and the processes involved and the key people involved and everything and the suppliers they've built up. So it's the whole round experience. Would it have to do with the fact that you're changing the menu every night? That adds a lot to it because that creates a different sense of creativity and pressure and, and pressure as well. Yeah. But Thomas calls pressure is like a misused word because when you think of pressure, you're thinking of failure. You're yeah. thinking of failure. So it creates a little bit of fear and inspiration. One, yeah. One of his sayings is, you know, there's no such thing as perfection. There's not like, so try, striving for perfer perfection is, is, you know, it's relentless. You'll never get there, but it's more about striving for excellence. Mm. And that's what they, they, they kind of cultivate that atmosphere in the, in the restaurant, striving for excellence. And excellence isn't any one big thing. It's all the small things. There's no well. words. There's no words that could even describe that. Even though it is subjective to say what makes an excellent kitchen, you wouldn't be able to even explain that in words. It's, it's more of a feeling. Yeah. Feeling. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the people running it, the leaders, the, the core values and the team, the, the philosophy behind the food and, and everything. Yeah. Um, we'll jump into the next part of this journey as we go down memory lane. Yeah. I think that's what this podcast is turning into, yeah, like a bit, a, bit of a, a bit of a therapy session, <laughs> a little bit of memory lane. But yeah. um, uh, we'll go to the, the next part of your career and, and this journey itself. So explain to us what happened after the French Laundry. What was the next step for you? Uh, I remember there being a bit of a low after French Laundry because I'd worked for so hard to get there. That was my dream for so long. And then it was like, I've, I've lived a dream. I've realized the dream. And then it's like, oh, what now? Mm. <laughs> so it was a little bit, it was a nice break after as well to come back home and have, uh, have a little rest. But then it was about, okay, where do I go next? I need to set myself another goal. So there's a little bit of a transition stage of, of figuring out what the next stage was. 
So then a kind of a natural transition is- But did you go back, you went back home to I, Yeah, I went Ireland. back home to England actually, because I was generally, I was based in England from when I was 20, from working at Michael Keynes and Gordon Ramsay. Yeah. So I've kind of left Ireland from when I was 17. I've immigrated since then, half my life ago. Yeah. Um, so I went back to UK. My girlfriend was there at the time as well. My visa finished in the French Laundry. I only had a nine, uh, uh, year and a half visa. So that expired and I did have a job lined up in New York in his other restaurant, but the visa fell through with that. So mm. it's kind of in this transition phase of what to do. And then a head chef job came up in Somerset in the UK in a very iconic hotel and I was only 26 at the time. So it was a really good time to start as my, in my head chef, <laughs> my head yeah, chef Yeah, that's a, it's a quite a nice area. You got uh, some famous school, Millfields out there. Yeah, and, there's a lot of good schools yeah. there in Somerset and- uh, Private schools, boarding yeah, schools. This, yeah, the Southwest of England's really nice. I did a bit of time in London, but that's quite hardcore and expensive. And like the mentality in London's very different as well. So I like growing up in the countryside as well. I liked more Somerset and Devon and Dorset and Cotswolds and all them parts mm. of England. So I took on that head chef job there, the Castle Hotel, an 800-year-old castle who had just lost their Michelin star. So part of my task was to win it back. And I took, that was my next challenge then, okay. to, to win back their Michelin star. Now, did you know about today. that before getting there? I actually, uh, the Castle Hotel was actually the first Michelin star restaurant I ever ate in when I was about 18. So it's quite an iconic place. So I'd, I'd eaten there, I'd stayed there um, and very, you know, I knew the head chef there, a lot of friends who worked there. So for that job to come up at that time and for me to step in as my first head chef job is really exciting. I mean, now, did you know that that was that one of the reasons they brought you in is because they've lost the Michelin star. So they're bringing you in with that intention and that yeah, goal. The okay. head chef had left. He was there 10 years. Yeah. So they'd left and I was straight out of the French laundry and I kind of fitted the profile and the brief for what they were looking for. So part of the brief was to come back and, you know, having a Michelin star is good. It kind of builds that reputation up and, makes it more of a destination restaurant yeah. and boosts the revenue and gets good staff in and that kind of stuff. So did, did they give you like a timeline? Like you need to get this in one month or? They gave me a little bonus. And I'm like, wow, that's all. <laughs> is that all it's going to, is that all it's worth? Yeah. <laughs> but as I got more into a head chef role, I realized that a few things I realized, I realized you can't just fire someone by saying you're fired, get out of here. <laughs> and I realized, I kind of, uh, I realized a lot of being a head chef a lot of all the paperwork, the admin, the food costing and the leadership aspect, you know, it's a big challenge. I had about 25 in my team uh, running two restaurants and a conference and banqueting as my first head chef job. So a big challenge, a huge challenge. I did that for two years. And um, did they get the Michelin star back? No, they didn't get the Michelin star back and they actually closed the restaurant. It was around the time of the financial crisis as well. So 2008. So, yeah, around then. So all the yeah. um, corporate business went. So all the room revenue for corporate business went. And running a fine dining restaurant through through the financial crisis is not feasible. Yeah. So we, they decided to close that and focus on the brasserie. So I used that time to focus on more brasserie style dishes and change my style. Like, you know, it's all, you always have to evolve your style. I couldn't reenact French laundry food there and then. I could incorporate some of the philosophies and some of the management techniques and some of the recipes, but, you know, it was adapting to the team I had and the clientele we're cooking for and so on. But really exciting. We had a great, great brasserie there, Braz Restaurant, a 
really fun brasserie doing 150 covers, churning out some really good. You're food. creating the menu. Your team's creating the menu. Are you, are you yeah. able to get in, in, especially these countryside places in the UK, can you get that exotic? Or you really got to stick to simple taste buds? Yeah. Well, the owner, Kit Chapman, a really visionary, like a really well-respected figure in the hospitality industry, championed, was one of the first people who championed local and seasonal food. Uh, so I had a brief that I could not use lemongrass, pineapple, any of these exotic ingredients. And at mm. first I thought uh, it's quite restricting. But then when you think about it and you, you know, I gave myself uh, and the brief I was given was that everything had to come within a 40 mile radius. And what that does is it, it, it creates boundaries and you got to find a, a globe artichoke grower and a cherry grower and the cherries are only available for one month of the year. And then you design a special around cherries and you run them for a month and then they're gone. So it really helped me like really establish some good um, boundaries for, for my you know, menus that I'm creating and stuff like that. And I found some incredible suppliers. You know, they used to be just coming in the back door. We had Barry who'd go out shooting pigeon and, and rabbits every Saturday and Sunday. And I call him on Friday and I said, I have 20 pigeons and 10 rabbits. He'd come in on Monday morning, this old Somerset farmer, and he'd have them all there and he'd be proud of them and everything like that. And I would use every part of the animal. I'd use make pate. I'd use, I'd use every single part of them. Um, of the Even the, the foot, the beak, everything like you're well, able. No, he'd skin them. He'd skin them and okay. uh, trust them and everything like that. Okay. So I just get the whole product. I'd use the fillet and the loin for prime dishes. And then I'd mince all the rest for like uh, terrines and pates. And then I'd use all the carcass and make a stock. And if yeah. I had, if I'd freeze it, if I had too much. So my food costs, you know, that's where I learned about food costs to run any kitchen. If you spend more money than you make, you're not going to be in business for very long. Yeah. I, I worked in a kitchen when I was 16. I, I was, I was a dishwasher initially. And then I moved up to, uh, not head chef, but chef. It was like a small, I don't know, I guess boutique Italian pasta restaurant, but it was run by a drunk Canadian. So that's another story. Yeah. But, um, that's the biggest thing I noticed working in, I worked there for about a year. Um, he was bleeding money because they had no control of yeah. the produce yeah. and then it would just go bad and you had to toss it out. Like yeah. you make the tiramisu, you don't sell them fast enough yeah. in the garbage or yeah. I was, I was eating them or something, you yeah. know, but, um, that part of, of your experience, was this the, your first experience kind of on the, the business side of things and the admin side. So at yeah. this point, as a, let's say any upcoming chef, your artistic and craft or sorry, your artistic touch and your craft can only take you so far. If you want to go to that next level, you, you really need to know the, the business ins and outs. Absolutely. Yes. You have to. And uh, how would I phrase that? Because it's not your company at, at this point in time. Right. Yeah. And you are running the business side. I mean, what was your incentive to make sure they didn't lose money. They didn't lose on produce because you're still making the decisions at the yeah. end of the day. You're, you might have to report to your boss, but at the end of the day, you're not running by certain, you know, prices on produce and when it's coming in and going out by the boss, you need to make those decisions. And if shit hits the fan, yeah. you're at fault, but the reality is they're losing money. So it, again, it's a bit long winded when you were involved in that, was there pressure from the bosses like in which you could lose your job? Um, how, how did that kind of uh, all work? Yeah, that was an interesting transition from, from like being the creative part to it to actually running a business. Um, as a chef, we get a, a P&L every month and our KPIs, our key performance indicators, are our food costs and our labor costs. 
they're our main costs, you know, and our labor cost, our staff cost is our biggest cost, our biggest liability, but it's also our biggest asset at the same time because that's your team. And then our food cost has to be kept in line too. And we have a financial controller who's going to be calling me up and saying, yeah. you know, what's wrong with your food costs? <laughs> Every receipt is kept and all that. And if my food costs and labor costs are high in relation to my revenue at the end of the month, I've got to explain myself at the head of department meeting. And if I don't take any action on that and it continues to decline, well, then that's my job gone. You may have all the Michelin stars in the world, but if you're not, if you're not putting any money in the bank, the business can't survive. So what would be your rebuttal in those meetings? Could you blame it on marketing? Uh, if you're not you getting sales. You can always complain on marketing, <laughs> like why aren't you selling more tickets and, exactly. and all that. There's always that debate on at the head of department, but ultimately chef is responsible for the food cost. If you're putting on really expensive sea bass, wild caught sea bass, that's costing 15 pounds a portion and you're selling it for 20 pounds a portion, you know, you're not going to last long, but you need to have that prime sea bass on the menu to attract a certain clientele. But how do you balance that? Then by all the terrines and pâtés I make from the trim, from the pigeon and rabbit that come in, there's like a zero food cost. Mm -hmm. I used to get pig's head in from my pig supplier. He'd throw them away. So I'd buy, I'd get them for free and I'd make brawn, a traditional old soup out of them and sell them for like nine, nine pounds. And that's nine pounds profit nearly. Mm -hmm. So I used to balance it like that. So it makes you be creative, even more creative in a sh as a chef in a different perspective. Now, Obviously, you didn't go to school on the business admin side, so you don't have that experience. Maybe you saw it in kitchens along the way. Was that fire in your belly um, that comes down to your principles to be the best, the most successful, whatever I'm taking on, I'm going to do this the best? Is that where that came from? Yeah, I think so. And like in taking responsibility and acceptance that that's part of my job duty and that I have to do it and I have to do it right. And the better I become at it, the more I can organize it, then the more time I can spend cooking and the nicer ingredients I can yep. buy and the more staff I can get and the better equipment I can get and so on. Yeah. And so, at this point, uh, how long did you end up staying with them for? Because you said they closed down, right? They closed the fine dining restaurant, but then they, have they the focused everything on the brasserie yes. and then like, you know, became profitable and so on and, and, and grew it from there. And I actually got them to a position where they relaunched a new restaurant. So, you know, we got the business profitable again and then we reopened another brasserie in a different mm. area, uh, the Castle Bow Bar and Grill. So they opened that an old kind of Art Deco style cafe brasserie. But just around that time, uh, Michael contacted me again and he had, they've taken over about six hotels all around the country and he offered me to, to be executive chef over one of them. So after leaving Gidley Park and going on to the French Laundry and going to the castle and then I was like, you know, being invited back into, into Michael, Michael Kane's hotel group was and this is it nice. this is 2010 now or yeah we're on about size about 28 at that time so two yeah. years of the castle and then yeah so now, now you're back with your 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 old mentor back with my old he's, mentor he's brought you in and now you're uh where, where sorry where so was the location up to the cotswolds in the uk about cotswolds. two hours north of yeah let's see and, and posh. this 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 uh podcast <laughs> will do well for people from the uk i think <laughs> outside it's gonna be hard to cheltenham yeah to cheltenham cheltenham was my home then for okay. the last five years a really beautiful part of the uk again well, sorry what, but where is that in the uk because again i'm right, I'm, in, the, right in the center right like cut right in the center gloucestershire gloucestershire okay. region so bristol will be one of the main cities Okay. Uh, south of Warwick, it's about an hour south of Birmingham. It's kind yeah. of in between London and Birmingham. It's probably the first real nice countryside outside of London. Okay. So right, a lot yeah. of second homes out there, a lot of like beautiful towns and a lot of good restaurants too and great farm, a really good farming. So you're getting up there, you're about 28, it's 2000. 
10, 10-ish, maybe 12, maybe 2010, I'm guessing. Yeah, around that. You're getting up there and um, you're executive chef at, uh, uh, did you mention the name of the hotel? Yeah, so it's called Lower Slaughter. Lower Slaughter, Slaughter Menu. It's, is, a, it quite, it's is it quite famous or? Lower Slaughter is quite a famous village in the Cotswolds. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so they had two hotels, they had a hotel and a restaurant side by side. So I overtook, took over the two of them side by side. Um, they'd taken the hotels over out of receivership. So they'd taken over a group of hotels that went into receivership. So they were all in need of new management. Yep. <laughs> so it was kind of walking into like, well, okay, <laughs> we've got a, we've got a project on our hands here. And was there tension there as, as this, uh, you're coming in as new management, management was management completely like wiped out and it was a clean slate or you had to have that transition? It was a bit gradual. It was a bit gradual. Some people had left, some people were still staying. <clears throat> so I came in, some people didn't like me, didn't want me to be there, didn't agree with the new ownership. So I came in and it was like, it was, it was a mission. Heads were clashing. They don't want to see yeah, your success. And no, they didn't. But I, I came in on a mission and I was very, um, you know, loyal to Michael, he'd helped me a lot over the, over my career. So I had, you know, a lot of, a lot of, uh, a lot to prove, a lot to, I wanted to improve there. So through, through the, your experiences, I mean, from, from the very beginning until this point, I mean, it seems that a, a chef, um, you start to grow thick skin pretty quick. You need it. <laughs> <laughs> you need it. You need it. And, and anyone, I think anyone probably knows that not, not just from watching Gordon Ramsay, but imagine if, if you didn't have that information as a child growing up, you yeah. start to learn. And especially if you work in a kitchen, you learn pretty quickly that if you don't have thick skin in these, this, uh, industry in this environment, you're not going to survive. No. Have you seen colleagues flop fail? Yeah. I've seen it all. I've seen everything. I've seen People walk out of jobs, like some of my colleagues I've seen walk out, they just can't handle the pressure. On the job. They literally leave their saucepan boiling and they just can't take it and they walk out the door and drive off, clear out their staff room of accommodation. We used to get midnight runners. I won't say where I worked. Okay. We lived in a staff house. We used to get midnight runners where in the middle of the night they'd pack their bags and they'd be gone. The pressure was just too much. The pressure is too much. And <clears throat> it depends what level of restaurant you're in. If you're at a really high level restaurant and you know, it's hard to survive. It's, you don't get away with much. You got to work hard. Then more people will leave. But the people who stay, you know, they develop that thicker. Did you ever have that thought or feeling of being a midnight round? Lots runner? of times. Lots of yeah. times. And so how, how times. did you get through it? Take a deep breath and move on. And I think what I learned throughout my career is, is it, it's when it comes that time to give up and to walk away and to just say, F it, I can't take it. If you can realize you're at that point and then just stick through for another week or month or so on and get through that next challenge, you'll see light at the end of the tunnel or there'll be a rainbow or something will happen or, you know, it does get better. And then you feel like, oh, wow, thank God I didn't give up. And you kind of get there. And then you remind yourself of that every time another challenge comes through and that it's okay. I've been here before. It's a tough time. It's a tough challenge. It's going to get better. And you kind of get through that next challenge again. And Learning these skills in a professional kitchen, it applies to life, you know. Mm -hmm. Life doesn't <clears throat> exist without challenge. Challenges come everywhere. And I've learned kind of a stoic attitude you need in the kitchen in that you've got to welcome challenge. Mm -hmm. You can't be scared of it. You can't avoid it. You can't cry about it. You've got to just accept it and figure out how to get, get through it and learn from it. And then what, you do. What you, was your most difficult challenge that to date, if you're able to share, if not, maybe your second most, in which uh, 
in relation to your industry, maybe not personal life, yeah. but in relation to the, your industry, um, something that almost broke you and, and, and you, you pushed through and how did you do that? Uh, good question. Yeah. Let me think about this. Um, no, it's, not, it's not a job interview. Why you think <laughs> about that? Uh, can you just bring your microphone a bit closer to your mouth? Yeah. Yes. Uh, it sounds you. okay on my side. Yes. No, I, it's like sound bites a bit. Ah, okay. it's okay. Now we're good. Um, um, good question. I think most recently, one of the biggest challenges I had actually when I came to Phuket was the language. Mm. So I found myself in a, working in a kitchen as the leader, as the teacher, as the mentor, and having to train a team of chefs that mostly do not speak any English. And I'm trying to communicate to them to get, you know, to get the team to do a recipe, to do a task, to follow a process. And that became, at the start, was so difficult and so frustrating because, you know, it really tested my tolerance and patience level because... Um, was, it was the, the language, the language barrier. barrier. The language yeah. barrier. The cultural barrier a little, but a little, but I think the language barrier as well. To a point where I got so frustrated, I'm like, okay, I can't do this, you know, I can't, I can't do this. It's just too, too frustrating. Um, but it really made me become a better communicator in the kitchen in like, it's not their fault. If I can't get my team to make the recipes or make the menu or follow the process, it's not their fault. It's mine because I haven't shown them properly. I haven't adapted. I haven't given them the training tools or the guides that they need. So it made me become a better, better communicator. So I learned how to speak a little bit of Thai. I learned how to do more body language, <laughs> a lot of like charades where, yeah. you know, a lot of, uh, maybe flashcards, you know, flashcards <laughs> or, or something, but you got to adapt. And for me, adapting to how they work and their skill level and their knowledge, um, you know, we, create an incredible environment there. I had a hundred people all together in my whole department. And when I think the main thing is finding that teamwork and that support structure and that trust level within the team that everyone will do everything for anybody, you know, and you develop this atmosphere and this culture of, um, of people working at ease that they know, that they know, you know, they have the support they need. Um, if they're not sure of something, they'll come and ask. And if I can't communicate to them, I'll find someone who can communicate it to them. So it's like finding someone who can translate it to them as well. But in a fast-paced environment um, where time is limited and you're looking for a translator, I mean, doesn't that, uh, I don't want to say destroy, that's probably not the right word, but at least like um, slow down this flow state, slow down the environment. You know, it's, there, there's, you're creating these extra layers in between that just doesn't give you that, that, uh, synchronicity that you've had before yeah so then it's about having realistic expectations i think but we haven't realistic expectations and what i expect of the team and not to put people in a position where i can't communicate to them at a certain time so you know we do a lot of daily trainings we have daily briefs uh, every day we'll sit around at 2 30 we'll start off with a five minute no three minute meditation and we all sit down the leader of every department and we all sit around and have an open-ended conversation not an open-ended conversation but a an open conversation about what's happening in your area, what's happening in your department, where your challenges are, what, what support, what resources you need. And then any challenges or any difficulties or any issues will resolve the problem there before it comes to like, you know, it's too late and we have to, we have to solve it further down the line. Yeah, because even if one department has a small issue, this can trickle down and it across will, everyone. I'm a big believer of the ripple effect. Yeah. The yeah. Big, yeah and kind of 
talking about it. When you feel it's a problem or there's something you're not satisfied with, we'll talk about it openly as a team. Mm -hmm. And then we'll kind of figure out a resolution. Sometimes it can be just an easy resolution. Um, or sometimes you need, we need to talk about it for a couple of weeks each day and try to figure it out and monitor it and let's like put it in the meetings and see how it goes and then get back to it another time. And this tool, did you take that? You, I, I'm just uh, going back to your time at the French uh, laundry. You said, I, I can't recall the guy's name, but you said he came into the kitchen and he could feel, yeah, that intuition if things were flowing, right? Is that where you've adapted that skill from? Yeah, I think I've taken a lot of skills like that from there and also the collaboration. We'll have daily meetings at the French laundry. We'll all sit around and, and, and design the menu together. And I think daily briefings are important, human to human interaction, not online group, like communicating yeah. everything, but actually get everyone sitting down and you see them face to face. We have a cup of tea and you just see their body language, you see how they're feeling. And then from there, you know, you listen to them, you listen to their challenges on their job if they don't have the right equipment they need. Yep. And then you build more kind of teamwork and more connection within your team and more trust and everything. And when you get that right in a team leadership environment, that trickles down to all the uh, the rest of the department. Yeah, because certain platforms uh, where you create, you know, work group chats, I mean, yeah. uh, things not only get lost in translation, but lost in meaning because you, you're taking out certain aspects of communication as intonations, as emotion, as feeling, yeah. um, and they can be interpreted in the wrong way as well. Yeah. Uh, and I, I mean, I see that all the time with my, my work as well. I'll be like, write the word, whatever. Okay, it's like, yeah. okay, are you... Are you, are you happy? Sure you're okay. <laughs> what do you mean by that? Smiley face. Yeah. Emoji. Yeah. That's how we're come to communicate now more. So. Emojis. I think so. Because yeah. you, you need to, the added emojis in work um, group communication to make sure that the word that you responded with, you can follow it up with emoji that mm. is essentially the emotion to what you're trying to convey yeah, as kind well. Kind of validates it a little validates bit. Validates instead uh, yeah. of just like, okay, thumbs up, smiley face, not like a sarcastic okay. Yeah, <laughs> how do you? Or maybe you can. There is an emoji for that as well. Yeah. <laughs> maybe the the googly eyes. I don't know. Um, okay, so um, from there now you're working in, uh, and it's 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 a lot to cover because it seems every couple years you're you're. Um, uh, I'm not going to the next chapter. We're not saying <laughs> onto the next chapter, onto the it's next a book. chapter. Remember it's a book. Yeah, it's a book. I was going to say jumping ship, but that's kind of has negative connotation attached to it. Oh. Not jump, but onto the next chapter. Yeah. Um, you're, you're, so you're up um, working at this hotel now, back with your your mentor, Michael, correct? Yeah. You're working with Michael, and this goes on for another couple years, or how can you continue that part of the story? Yeah, so that took me to, I was about 30, 31 at the time, and I spent two years working there at Lower Slaughter. And that was quite a turning point in my career then. So by the time I'd finished there, I had four years under my belt as executive chef, um, at Lower Slaughter, I think I had a great success there. I got the team from being a broken team that was taken over in liquidation and receivership from old owners into bringing it into the top 10% of restaurants in the UK. So we got an award. We didn't get a Michelin award. That was my goal. Never got there. Yeah. That's part of, I'll explain later, part of the um, how I ended up in Phuket. Okay. <laughs> uh, but we won a, a 3AA Rosettes, which is top 10 of restaurants in the UK. Very profitable. We had a really great team. And on paper, things are running well. On paper, mm. uh, you know, I'd burnt out. You know, to get the team to that success, I had to work 100 hours a week. I had to do the work for three or four chefs to keep my payroll down. Um, 
you know, I sa- I sacrificed a lot to get the to to make it a success. So you're up at five thirty. You're going to bed at yeah. one two a.m. Yeah, yeah. I didn't get to see my girlfriend. And you did that for two years. Yeah, for two years. Shit. Yeah, my relationship suffered. I didn't get home. Like you know, I had to work Christmas yeah. and you know all the holidays. You got to work. So you got to sacrifice a lot, and a lot of chefs do that as well. And you have to because the nature of the industry you're working yep. when everyone else is partying and holidaying, and that's the sad side of the industry then as well. And tend to yeah. be very short staffed whether we can't find the right chefs or we don't have the budget for their chefs. So then you just got to put in the extra work yourself and do the work of three or four people. So you've, you've, you've kind of burnt out after the second year and you've, you've made the decision to leave or? It, it came as a feeling, you know, it came as a while and I told my girlfriend and she's like, no, you know, if you don't stay, you get through it. But I, I kind of, I thought, was I at that point where I need to carry on or do you need to walk away? Those are two and different they're things. They're two different. Sometimes you do need to walk, not walk away, but just change trajectory. Yeah. And I thought about it for a few months and I tuned into how I was feeling, my energy levels. And essentially I didn't really like the chef I had become, you know, I was very angry. I was very stressed. I had these expectations up here of winning this Michelin star. And even though we're in the top 10% in the UK, I still wasn't good enough. That's strange because I would assume probably somebody in the top 20 does have a Michelin star. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But is that just kind of luck of the draw, depending on when they came into the restaurant? Yeah, like you said, they came in on, on my day off. I'm one of my very few days right? off and the restaurant manager was chewing, chewing gum. And did, did, said, this I, is a true happened. story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It happened. And the restaurant manager was chewing, chewing gum. And then my sous chef did a dish that wasn't on the menu or he didn't do it right. And then I came yeah. in the next day and the Michelin inspector announced himself and told me all this bad feedback. And that just kind of like, you know, whether it breaks you or just gets you down. Especially it's uh, probably the only day you took off yeah, in like, exactly, who knows yeah. how long. <laughs> Anyways, it's something you can laugh back at now. It is, it's, yeah. It's and at the, the time the now, it came a point where I know I knew needed a break, you know, after the intense intensity of getting to the French laundry, thriving and thriving at the French laundry and doing so good there and then coming back and being an executive chef for four years. So I kind of hit a point where, okay, I need to, need to reset, need to stop to take a break so that's where thailand came about you know before i came out i was double chinned i was overweight i've smoked for about 15 years yeah have a few beers every night just to de-stress the chef's lifestyle kind of thing so i know i knew if i carried on that lifestyle by the time i come 40 it's going to be you know it's not going to be and it's just going to get worse and yeah so i took that decision to take a career break finish move on had some money in the bank, came out to Northern Thailand, up to Pai, Mae Hong Song. Oh, nice. And, and what year are we in now? We're in 2012? 2000, I think around 2015 now. Okay, 2015. So six years ago, yeah. Okay. And now or, you came yeah. out with your your the, the same girlfriend at, at the- No, she stayed in UK. She, she was st- working- So you came by yourself? Came by myself. Well, Time for, for me because- Why Thailand? Well, I came out myself as well because part of my head chef job is you're looking after your guests- you're looking after your staff, you're looking after your boss, you're looking after your suppliers. You like dedicate your time to looking after everybody and then you kind of forget about yourself. And I think that's very common in the industry as well. Um, and as a chef, we, we're nurturers, we cook for people, we want people to like our food, but then you look after everybody at work, but then you don't kind of look after yourself. So I went out on my own for two months. My Thai is what attracted me to Thailand. I wanted to get fit again. Yeah, Muay, Muay Thai. Muay Thai. I thought Wait, you said Muay, Mai Thai. Muay Thai. Muay Thai. And some Mai Thais. Mai Thai is like another Mai drink on the beach. It started <laughs> there. I didn't actually have any Mai Thais. It was all Muay Thai. Yeah. I said I'd stop drinking for a couple of months while I'm out here. No yeah. drinking. I'd stop smoking. Completely finished that. And then I signed up uh, to Thai boxing 
in Chernshai camp up in Pai, Meong Up in Pai. How did you choose that location? How did you decide Thailand? I mean, there, you have you have the world's your oyster. Yeah. There's many places you can go. I'd been here on a holiday about 10 years ago, and I, I liked it then. Uh, I liked the lifestyle, the culture. I've always liked Thai food. And my sous chef, or no, my first head chef, G, he, he was from the Thai-Malaysian border, Alo Sattar. Mm-hmm. And I came out to Malaysia with him, actually, when I was 18 on another culinary tour. So I'd always had, I'd, I'd always had that desire and like, you know, um, to come back to here because it's part been of about Asia. 10 years. And yeah. And, and like the white, I'd done my tie when I was at Gidley Park too, to keep fit. We don't have much time for training. So my days off, I would do a little bit of my tie because it's very good fitness. Yep. So I'd, I'd, I, it was mainly for a bit of my tie and the food and the yoga lifestyle and the kind of, um, Buddhist kind of culture of Thailand. To is rebalance. Great. And yeah. Yeah. And, and it's, it's Thailand. Their people are very friendly, very inviting. It's a, it's quite safe. There's not any problems here. I mean, I've never had an issue. But um, when you were here 10, 10 years before that, you you came to Pai, where you're on a vacation in Thailand. Besides them, or were you just at that Malaysian border? The so when I was eighteen, I came out with G. We went around Malaysia. We went to Penang, Ipoh, yeah. all around Malaysia on the tour. And then ten years ago, I came out just on a tour around Chiang Mai. And I think we came to Phuket, but only for two days. I vaguely remember it. Okay. Very vaguely remember. We went on to Phi Island. As most. Like most As most do. We were here yeah. for like 10 days and it was kind of like Chiang Mai. And we took the overnight train. The backpacker Bangkok. route. The backpacker route, yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, that gave me just a short taste of the Thai. I had my elephant. You yeah, know, for sure. Things <laughs> burnt and like. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but it gave me a good taste for Thailand. So I always kind of wanted to come back. And then when I was working back in England, it's cold, it's wintry, and you have these visions of tropical beaches and coconuts and, you know, that. Yeah, yeah, no, I'm from Canada. It's, I haven't been home in three years, mostly because of the mm-hmm. current situation, and we try to use this word on the podcast because we don't want YouTube to shadow ban us or something. No. <laughs> yeah, that's wise. But yeah, no, it's the same. I, every time I go back home, it's great for a month, but after that, it's like, I live across the street from the beach. I can get on my motorbike and get in the yeah. car. I can go here. I can go there. And then you get really uh, uh, restricted, I find. Yeah. You're really stuck in these these smaller bubbles, even though yeah. Phuket's a bubble, but it's a beautiful bubble. It is indeed, yeah. Um, so you, you went up to Pai at this point, um, and your intention was just kind of yoga, train, eat well, and kind of recalibrate. Yeah. Was there a time limit on that, or was it I open-ended? A, I had a two-month time limit. I forget what I had to get back for. Well, I had no job. I finished my job. Finished my job diplomatically. Like, you know, I moved on. I've never burnt any bridges in my career. I'd done my time. I got a replacement and I, I moved on. So it was a two-month period just to come out to do my tie. And actually yoga at that time, I was like, I don't do yoga. I don't tell my friends I do yoga. You know, coming from yeah. the West of Ireland, it's not a not a thing. You walk around with yeah, your yeah, yoga yeah. mat. <laughs> yoga mat on your back so um, that came about accidentally I only came across yoga because I couldn't walk from my Thai um, so after my six weeks of my Thai I saw a, a sign for a yoga retreat so I said okay I go to that just to like you know, relax get some mobility bit, get some mobility yeah. back again and it was actually on that retreat that the the, the lady running it Bud, Bud was her name she, we, she talked about competitiveness and it was that like boom that light bulb moment Mm. about competitiveness that I realized, okay, like, why am I so competitive? I don't need to be. And that was one of the turning points when I came back to the UK after is to not be pushing for these awards and these accolades and recognition and all that. I don't need to do that. It's only stressing me out. It's only like tiring me out and everything. So, you know, that time in Thailand made me come to terms with my competitiveness 
and kind of do away with so it. So at this point you're, you're coming for, it was just a quick two months and then you're going to go back to the UK. I didn't know what I was going to do. I didn't know what I was going to come back for. And what, where did, did you figure out where this competitive spirit came from? Are you competing against others? Are you competing against yourself or, or are you just working towards a goal? I think a combination of competing with myself and others, um, being a, you know, doing a lot of sport when I was younger, we were always quite competitive. And it's, I think a certain amount of competitiveness is good. It's, it can be healthy. It can be healthy. It is I mean, and you need to set standards yeah. and bars without those. What are you working towards? Exactly. Yeah. But it can become a very ego driven over competitiveness. And why am I doing this? Why do I need the recognition to validate if I'm good at a yeah. good chef or not? Um, so it was like an epiphany moment for me is like, okay, um, I don't need to prove to anyone that I'm good at what I do. I know myself that I'm good. So, um, yeah. Mm. So that you've, you've, you've done the, the two months and you, now did you actually, you went back to the UK or is this the complete transition to um, Thailand? So that was the two months. So throughout, actually my time in Chiang Mai around this two months as well was when I first stopped eating meat accidentally. So I came out here I, throughout my career. I was always a meat cook and a butcher and a fishmonger and everything, all my cuisine was based around animal products. So it was just by accident actually while I was out here that I stopped eating meat I was at a, um, a food market in Chiang Mai and all the vegetables were looking beautiful. Like all the suppliers would come in from the valleys and bring all their produce and everything. And, and really like beautiful market. But then I came along to the meat section and it was like this stinking smell of death. Flies. Like flies, going, yeah. rats. I can still see the rats running around the meat. Yeah. And the guys butchering the meat with this look of death in them. And like, it was just, it smelled horrible. And I'm like, okay, if this is where I'm getting my pad thai, if this is where the chicken or the pork is coming from for my pad thai while I'm here, I said, okay, I'll, while I'm in Thailand for this two months, this is at the start of my two-month travel. So I thought, oh, while I'm here for the two months, I'll stop eating meat as a way to stop myself from getting food poisoning. Meanwhile, if you knew it was just coming from the super cheap, yeah, I kind of, I kind of associated <laughs> with if yeah. I'm buying meat, that's where it's going to come from. <laughs> so not, that yeah. association was yeah. like, okay, I'll cut it out while I'm here. But then okay, let's, let's see it as a learning experience. I'll learn some new vegetarian and vegan dishes so that when I come back to England or wherever I go, I'll have broadened my repertoire. Because in England at the time, six or seven years ago, the best vegetarian or vegan food would be a mushroom risotto or a, mm. or a ratatouille lasagna or something. But it was just starting to trend around this time. Very like unheard of. Like, you know, I learned to make kombucha in Pai on my time in Thailand. And yep. I, I came back making kombucha in England. Everyone thought I'd lost the plot. Everyone thought I was going crazy. Like, what are you doing? What's this like <laughs> Ferment, tea, fermented tea, tea you're yeah. making? Now all the big, yeah. like now it's booming everywhere. So I think I was just a few years ahead of all the trends happening. And I very much following just my instinct at the time, you know, to stop eating meat for personal health reasons, to explore new avenues of culinary like development. Mm -hmm. and, and then that with the like realization of my competitiveness, and all them mixed together and like doing yoga, doing Mai Tai, getting fitter, getting healthier, feeling the freshest and healthiest I've ever been in my life without eating meat and doing exercise. So that put me in a position when I came back to England, it was like completely different mindset. But were, did you continue to cook meat in England or was your transition to uh, being a, a plant-based chef to add some competition or, or creativity meaning well now i cannot cook with meat so what the hell am i going to cook yeah. and trying to pretty much restructure your entire craft yeah yeah that was a big turning point yeah. so i came back 
I came back and I didn't go vegan or vegetarian or stop eating meat straight away. It was very much a transition because growing up with it as part of my diet and, you know, a treat for me is a ribeye steak caramelized in brown butter with thyme and garlic with some like I'm going to be starving at the end of this sauce. podcast. <laughs> and that's like a treat, you yeah. know, but now it's like a, you know, to transition from that to now a treat is like, you know, just something simple like a, like a, a simple plant-based dish. Mm-hmm. So it was a transition. And for me, it was an educational, a whole different approach to food as well. So I started doing, I remember my first event was a raw vegan event, a five course in, in, back in, the, back in U- England. Back in England. Now you're working somewhere at this point? I went, or I went freelance. I could have stepped, I could have, okay. ste- I could have stepped into any head chef job. I could have got a yeah, job yeah. anywhere, but I like, no, I don't want to. I need to, I need to find out what I want to do exactly. You know, yep. cause I got a whole different mindset here. So I said to some of my friends, how does holistic chef sound? And I said, yeah, it sounds good. So I registered the business name and I said, okay, cause that kind of fit with my whole approach in that, you know, holistic is a whole different, a whole approach to, to chefing. And I'll go into it more about my holistic approach. Yeah. Well, so let's discuss that. You are the holistic chef, but what is your definition of holistic? In relation to cooking and eating? Yes. In relation I, to yeah, cooking and eating. Holistic is, can be a very overused term nowadays. Um, but my approach to holistic is in relation to food is that if it's not just about what we're eating. It's about how we're eating, how we're feeling when we're eating, who we're eating with, the, where the food came from, like how it's produced, the soil that it comes from, the sustainability, the farmers and growers, the community that impacts, um, the nutrition, the education around nutrition, um, our digestion, you know, like down to the, how many times we chew food will have a completely different impact to the food we eat than if we just chew it five times and swallow it, or if we chew it 30 times and swallow it, it'll have a completely different impact on our body. Mm-hmm. So for me, a whole holistic approach is more about the why, when, who, and what we're eating. And where did you pick this up? Because I'm assuming that when you've kind of, okay, I'm going to try plant, being a plant-based chef, you're going to need to go study and research and yeah, learn lots, that. Lots, you, lots. It's a lot of information. Every point that you've mentioned there of the holistic wheel, probably each point we could talk about for an hour. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So wh- where did you pick up that information to allow you to transition to this new type of technique yeah. and style? So it kind of started in India a little bit. That's where I first heard of Ayurveda. I couldn't say the word at the start. I didn't know what it meant. And Ayurveda is beautiful. It's the life science. It goes back about four or 5,000 years. It translates to life science. And Ayurveda is a very holistic approach of, of living life, a way of life. Um, yoga came out of Ayurveda. Um, Ayurveda encapsulates massage, food, your relationships, your lifestyle, everything. And it sees, you know, food as medicine. And when we give our body what it needs, it can heal from within. Mm-hmm. It gets to the real root cause. So it's food is just one part of that wheel. One part of rebalancing, yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's not just about what we eat. It's about how we're feeling when we're eating. Like what we're feeding our mind is even as, as important as what we feed our body. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, Meaning don't eat a pizza and watch YouTube. But, but if you eat a pizza, eat it and enjoy it mm-hmm. and savor it and don't feel guilty for it and own it. And it's better to eat something that's bad for you, but enjoy it and eat it with feeling good. Can't do it every day rather than eating something that's so healthy for you and it's got all the protein, macros, carbs, phytonutrients, it's got everything weighed up and measured perfect, but you're eating it and you're afraid that it's one thing isn't organic or you're afraid that, you know, something is out of balance or you're eating with, you know, have I done enough exercise today and you're eating it with guilt. 
Mm-hmm. So I think eating something that's that's not particularly good for us, but enjoying it can have even a better impact than eating something that is so good for us, but eating about guilt. Mm. And that's kind of, you know, one of the many little, little things from my holistic Did you approach. have to take a, a, a course? I'm assuming, you, I'm going to guess, you're in India, you're walking around and you're seeing Ayurveda, Ayurveda, Ayurveda everywhere. Yeah. And you've kind of decided, uh, what is that? Yeah, and, and then, so that's it. So what is that? And it's learning, and I'm still learning about it. Well, it was and it's self-taught, though. It's going to be a lifestyle of learning. Mm. Um, and it is self-taught. I've also, I, I worked in China a little bit, in Shanghai, in a holistic wellness resort yeah. there, and I collaborated with an Ayurvedic doctor on using food as medicine. And working with him, he knows what cardamom is good for, what cinnamon is good for, what ginger is good for, what turmeric is good for. He knows what ailments are good for. And then I create a recipe with all them ingredients and they were like, okay, put them together. We eat this regularly and it can balance blood sugar. It can reduce your cholesterol. So food is medicine. Food in that is sense. medicine. It is. It's preventative. You know, what we eat, we become. If we eat good, eat good food, you feel good. If you eat bad, you feel bad. Essentially, it's kind of simple, but we kind of oversee that mm-hmm. a lot. Did you do any research into like the nutrition side of things on food? Because this yeah. is, most chefs probably don't do not on um, what that food is going to make you feel, make no, you, no. It's, you're, you're cooking for, for taste mm-hmm. and style. Um, how did that all come about? How, yeah. did, how did you dive into that? So that came about through a 25 course meal in a restaurant in Copenhagen. I was eating a universe menu at Geranium Restaurant by Rasmus Kofud. I'd done a, this is just before I went to Thailand on the two month gap period. Yep. So I nipped out to Copenhagen for, for a couple of months and did some free internship there. And I had a 25 course menu there after working there for a month. And I sat there, you can overlook the whole of Copenhagen. And we had, I had this dining experience. I didn't drink any alcohol at the meal. They had a, a wine, t- um, they had a, a fruit wine menu as well, like mm-hmm. a non-alcoholic wine menu made out of pine needles and blueberries and all these different wild forage fruits. So I drank that pairing course. So I wasn't drunk. I remembered every single dish. And that whole experience just blew me away. It's like you could see all the chefs in the kitchen and it just run like a symphony orchestra. This restaurant do not have any, they've like two waiting staff. So the chefs will, a lot of the chefs forage for the food. They connect with the suppliers, they make all the food, they prepare them, and then they come out and they'll serve the guest the dish and they explain the story and the technique and everything. Mm-hmm. And it was a combination of it. It was like incredible food, stories, um, theater, art, craft, like agriculture. A lot of the ingredients they use in Denmark is biodynamic. So they plant the seeds on a certain time of year, depending on where the moon is. It sounds crazy, yep. but it's actually true because you plant the seeds at a certain time of year for them to harvest. So it's quite simple, really. But um, in biodynamic agriculture, it's it, it's quite a, it's getting you know it takes organic to the next step. Um, and the, these uh, these lessons, they're nothing new. They've been around for thousands. They've been around of years. for thousands of years. Yeah, yeah like bef- people would do them. Like they'd they do these. Like even in Somerset, at a certain time of year, they do is called a wassailing, and they'll dance around the apple trees. I've done it myself. You know, you dance around the apple trees and drink cider brandy, mm-hmm. and it's a way of blessing the trees for a good harvest for the next year. And this is an age old tradition. This is paganism days. Yeah. Um, yeah. So biodynamic is really, you know, holistic and really fascinating. I get so excited about the whole biodynamic approach. Do you apply the, now 
Is it an approach? Is it a principle? It's a way of agriculture, a, a way, way of, of farming. Do you yeah. do you apply this to your current practices here in Thailand? When I'm, it, it it's down to where I get the ingredients from. So back in England, I had connected with some biodynamic farms, and I would use their products when I could in different events yep. and different festivals. I would collaborate with them and you know work together, partner with them. Here in um, Phuket, what I did, I when Tanya Pura closed in lockdown with the owner, we set up a organic farm up in Tanya Mundra in Khao Sok. So you could say that's a biodynamic approach in that there's yeah. biodynamic approach means there's nothing outside the farm taken in, that everything is produced in the farm, like all the the compost and the manure is like, you know, the manure is turned into compost and used to grow the vegetables and, you know, there's no external things taking into and the And this is how you would define like organic, raw, rich soil as well. Yeah, the soil. It's all about the soil because we <clears throat> get minerals from the soil. We yeah. can't eat it from the soil. We're reliant upon the plants. They put their roots in the soil, take out all the nutrients, all the minerals. The plants do the magic work. They yeah. turn this, these minerals into, into fruits and vegetables. Then we can eat. and We eat them vegetables and that's how we're getting our soil from the earth. So what, what are your thoughts on uh, modern day practices of ag agriculture and tilling practices? And how um, my understanding is due to over tilling mm -hmm. um, that we're stripping the environment and the soil of these essential nutrients, yeah. specifically for things such as vitamin B. Um, is this something I'm sure you're aware of? Yeah, the, the soil is being, there's major problems with the soil, like all around the world. America has had big problems with soil. And I think a lot of other countries, like it's just been, you know, all the stripped, nutrients stripped, stripped, yeah. stripped of everything. Like typical humans, like just taking everything from it and not looking at the long term. But the the or, or the biodynamic approach is more about, you know, stock ro or crop rotation and allowing certain areas to rest and then, you know, fertilizing the soil with more organic substances as well and looking after mm. the bees and making sure, you know, there's there's plenty of bees around that pollinate and making a whole holistic. But is this a realistic approach? Is it uh, on a commercial level? Meaning like you could do this in your backyard, but uh, let's say in the U.S. They're, they're, they're growing corn to feed to the cow, but they've done the tilling on the corn. Yeah. Fields now the cow aren't getting the vitamin B yeah. and then we eat the cow and yeah. and but so why, on. Why don't we just cut out the cow, cut out the mm. corn and start planting crops that are good for humans, diverse mm. crops, like have more diversification of crops and that diver that diversification will lead on to more diverse gut health in humans and then we have better immune systems. Mm -hmm. If we're eating the same thing day in, day out and, um, you know, we get a compromised gut and it's the same with, the same with land if we're producing the same crops all the time it just um you know denatures the soil and everything but it's completely as you said like you know we're growing corn and ruining the soil to feed animals that we're actually eating and not getting very healthy and they're not them. getting you anything know, there's, from there's it either eight something like eight <clears throat> kilos on average eight depending on what the animal it is and what grain there's about eight kilos of grain needed to produce one kilo of meat from an animal. So why don't we just cut out the animal production or reduce it, reduce is it over that, time? Is that possible or is just the, the the meat industry is too in bed with corporate America that this just isn't going to happen? Well, I think over a period of time, it is possible. And look what's happening now with climate change and everything and the realization that, okay, we need to look after our soil. We need to change. The whole food system is so broken. It needs to change. It's not sustainable. And... Um, a lot of the corporate America, a lot of a lot of them are going into more plant-based mm -hmm. foods now because they see the growth and essentially it's lower cost. 
you know, to produce all these plant-based meats, it's a lower cost so that they can get a higher margin. So a lot of the, there's a big corporate shift already from animal-based protein into plant-based protein. And what about the people that everyone's going to have their, their, their own opinion and arguments, but let's be honest, even myself, I don't think I'm educated enough to be an expert to give a valid opinion. Mm. I mean, if I'm down at the bar, I can talk shit and say, pretend I know everything yeah. what I, well, I'm talking all, yeah, about. Yeah, we all have a... a but yeah. yourself, you are. Um, and well, no, I'm, I'm, still, I'm still learning. I'm still learning. And I think there's a lot we can still learn about it. But. Kind of my, my point was you're going to get the argument from the vegan to the guy on the keto diet, to the guy on the mm -hmm. carnivore diet, to the Atkins diet, and yeah. so on and so on and so on. In this conversation, is anyone right? Is anyone wrong? I think <laughs> it's, it's a, a hard good question. question. It's so a good it's, question. Yeah, and, there's, and these arguments and these debates will always go on. Mm. Will always go on. Um, like, but I guess more like to make the question, is there a secret sauce that could solve everything? In I terms of diet? Not any one thing, but in terms of diet, and a lot of studies done recently from UN and everything from, a, you know, from good resources, is in the, a, a, a more of a plant-based diet is is one of the healthiest diets for humans, but also for the for the animals, for the soil, for the environment. It's more sustainable. Now, I know it's not possible for everybody to go vegan or everybody to go plant based. You know, a lot of a lot of areas re rely on fish for their main source of protein and so on. And a lot of places rely upon certain meat. You know, the Eskimos have to eat fish. What are they going to do? You know, oh, they, yeah, they have the I, I actually yeah. have a friend that lives up in the, the the Arctic and she yeah. has she has to eat whale seal yeah but that's all there is like yeah. you, you don't really have those options no. I think but, it, it needs to be a more gradual shift I think for us all to take more responsibility of what we eat and I'm a big believer in that we vote with our forks and knife everything we eat every day we're voting for and I love the taste of meat I love the taste of fish nothing nicer than a nice slow braised shoulder of lamb and Moroccan spices in a tagine like these are delicious foods, yeah. but I've <clears throat> sacrificed my short-term pleasure for eating these ingredients for the pain and suffering that animal has gone through, but also the detrimental impact to the environment it's had. Mm -hmm. I know on the grand scheme of things, it's not going to make a huge difference, but for me, I feel a lot more, I feel a lot more um, at ease with that because it's just more of a... Um, more comfortable in more your comfortable decision. in my decisions around that. And you do feel a lot different when you're eating animals all the time that have been subjected to cruelty and pump full of hormones and yeah. all that. We are what we eat. If we're eating animals that have been filled with um, chemicals and like lived a life that's brutal, yeah. we're going to take on that energy. That's kind of obvious. Mm. <laughs> I agree on that too. That's I have the obvious. same thought, yeah. And, yeah, and it depends what, like again, like if the, is this mass production chickens in which you got 50 chickens in a two square meter pen. Yeah. And they call it, Free range. Yeah. yeah. Right. What are yeah. the guidelines? You know, they all hide this marketing. There's yeah. so much manipulative marketing going on and it easily misleads about 90% of the people. And I'm very lucky for my dad as a philosopher and like a poet taking a step back and look at the bigger picture. And you've got to take a step back from all the marketing and see what's actually behind it and what's actually mm -hmm. going on. And a lot of that is hidden from, from, from us. Especially uh, uh, again of what is, uh, nutritious for, for us. And, and as we're absorbing, what are, what are the essential uh, vit vitamins that we're taking from that? Yeah. My question on that is, uh, I, I think like the argument that will come back from the meat industry is saying that, yes, you can go vegan, but um, you will, you need to supplement. 
Are you yeah. supplementing on, on vitamins specifically to like um, vitamin B? Vitamin B12, I've always been B12. kind of on the fence with. And I've, I, I always practice what I preach. First of all, like when I work in kitchens, you know, I won't ask anyone to do anything that I wouldn't do myself or I couldn't do better than them, like leading by example in the kitchen. And I would not actively promote a plant-based lifestyle. I don't say diet at all. I actively promote a plant-based, mm. a healthy, balanced plant-based lifestyle because I believe it's the healthiest for us and the planet. But in saying that, it going back to Ayurvedic approach, that's not for everybody. Some people do need to eat meat on certain times of year. And some people do need to eat fish or do take supplements. So everybody's kind of, you know, still got to tune into what they need as well. But from my perspective, I'll happily promote that. I went from being a smoker of 15 years who couldn't run up the stairs yep. without passing out to running, I ran two marathons here in Phuket, Phuketon. Four hours, 45 minutes, the first one. Four hours and five minutes, the second one. The second oh. one I did not train for. I signed up three weeks before. My God. And that's, I 100% believe that's from a whole food, plant-based diet consistently on a regular basis. I don't take protein shakes. Then my Thai fighters up in Northern Thailand, yeah. they weren't taking protein shakes. No. They protein shakes. Yeah, yeah, it's expensive. It's, whey is a byproduct of the dairy industry. Is it a byproduct of cheese. Egg of cheese, not egg whites? So separate your curds and whey. When you make cheese, yeah. you get a byproduct of whey. Whey. So what do they do? The marketing industry turn it into a high protein supplement and do good like marketing. Is, the, is there any way from these whey proteins that it can be healthy and any I, shape I or form? I don't want to go into too much detail on yeah, okay. that it, precisely because I know there's so many debates about it and I no, know I some of my I, friends really take whey and all that. And what is whey for? Do you want to pump muscle? Is that an ego thing to have a six pack? Mm. You know, for me, strength is about, it's not about having a six pack or big muscles, but having a strong mind and a strong immune system. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not about showing off muscles and that. And whey kind of, it's more about building muscle. That's kind of the, the aim from what I understand from it. So supplements have always taken a, a back seat on it. Other than saying that mushrooms is a different thing, honestly, I'm not just saying that because yeah, yeah, I'm yeah. here, but mushrooms is a natural food. And in a way that's not, I don't see mushrooms as a supplement. I see it as a food. Yeah. Fun, a fungi actually are not a plant. You know, they're a fungi. Yep. So the whole plant-based lifestyle forgets about the whole fungi world and there would be no plants well, without yeah, fungi. Their genetics are closer to ours than yeah. they are to plants. It's fascinating yeah. the whole mycelium, how they feed all the, the roots of the plants and everything. That's the, well, the, I think the biggest organism in the world somewhere in Oregon, which is yeah. a mushroom mycelium yeah. organism. Completely fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's interesting. I, I, there's still not enough research on it yet. And yeah. this is where the food industry and the supplement industry, they, they clash a little bit because, yeah. um, certain, well, mushrooms, let's say reishi or whatever, or let's keep it more simple, like lion's mane, because lion's mane, at least it's edible. So the food industry, and especially the the button mushroom industry, these guys want nothing to do with these other mushroom products because they that's kind of the, the main mushroom if you're from North America. Yeah, I mean, we have oyster mushrooms and, and, and chestnut, porta, chestnut, chestnut and porta, portabella, but yeah. button mushroom is the staple. Um, now- the problem is the food industry says, well, you don't need the supplements because you should you eat your medicine. But from my research and what I've seen over the past few years, the problem is you would have to eat so much of that to get what you were looking for. So you could look at things like uh, oyster mushrooms. And they have a, a non-essential amino acid in it called ergothionine. Yeah. And ergothionine is meant to... Um, help with uh, the antioxidization of your cells, which prevents 
um, aging. Yeah. Um, you would have to, they, and you can go online you can, and you can look at like real studies on this. You would have to eat like nearly a kilogram a day of it or more cooked yeah. to get your daily intake. And that's kind of where mm. the, the mushroom supplement industry comes in and tries to argue with the food industry because what happens, the mushroom supplement industry is buying from China and they're buying direct, but the mushroom food industry is growing it in the UK and Canada and, and USA. So they can't make the dollar. Yeah. So they're trying to say, no, 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 no. You don't need to take the supplement just to eat it. Have, have you heard of anything like this before or? Um, because it works kind of different si for turmeric. It's kind of similar in the dairy industry, you know, the dairy industry with their marketing and trying to not allow plant milks be called milks. Mm. And that thing, it's like the industries are protecting their, their product, their industry. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, I, I was on the fence of, of it as well. Um, but for the mushroom side and I, I'm trying not to be biased, it kind of makes sense to me because yeah. the, then the other argument is, well, well, sorry, it's not even an argument, but if you took like, uh, turmeric or turmeric, yeah. um, it doesn't need to be like a super concentrated dosage to handle it. You can if you're to power powder, basic turmeric, you're going to yeah. get your daily in, in, intake, maybe yeah. a gram or two grams. It's yeah. enough. And you can put that directly into your porridge, as I know that's your breakfast of choice. Yeah. Um, hey. um, You've done your homework. I've nice. done my homework. <laughs> um, or you can put that into a shake. And yeah. as long as, you know, like a banana, a mango shake or, or, or whatnot. Um, so kind of going off topic there, but for your cooking ingredients and you're saying food is medicine, what do you cook with specifically that you feel is the medicine in your food? Um, yeah, whole food plant-based. For me, it's fruits, vegetables, nuts, seeds, fungi, grains, pulses, seaweeds, barks, flowers, mm -hmm. um, all them combined in a different variation. So, um, and there's, Going on protein first, you know, grains and pulses, there are certain proteins that will be a, a basis of, of my recipes and what I eat. Uh, quinoa, millet, buckwheat, hemp, uh, lentils, beans, all these kind of ingredients that are, got all the amino acids mm -hmm. that, that we need from foods. So I combine them kind of as the basis of a lot of recipes. And then... To bulk that out then, you know, a combination of root vegetables, a combination of vegetables that grow from under the ground and over the ground. That's where I find balance. And then ingredients from the tree, so nuts and seeds, and then something from the sea. we got seaweed. Mm -hmm. And then flowers as well, you know, a butterfly pea flowers, and there's different teas and different herbs like that as well that are quite And you're nutritious. incorporating these. Incorporating it all into recipes. Because essentially now they're more uh, like aroma. It's, and spices it's, too, and spices, yeah. of course, yeah. And you're, you're putting this into a single recipe or it's spread out through like uh, maybe a different meals you would cook? Yeah, a whole variety, a whole variety. And that's, I'm all about variety is the spice of life. And when the food for food, it's all about variety. Going back to our gut health, you know, we need to have a, a diversity of, of a variety of ingredients to get different nutrients, for example. And then going through the year by eating seasonal foods, we're getting what our body needs at that time of year. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, part of the core values of what I believe in and, and promote is eating seasonal, what's local, because then we're, we're eating what's in our environment and what's what we need for the area we're in. Like here now in Thailand, we drink watermelon juice, we drink coconut water to keep our body cool. Um, wax gourd is another great ingredient I use here in a juice as well. Um, very plentiful in the market, but use ingredients like that that are seasonal and local. And that's giving our body what it needs for this area we're in here. 
Whereas if I'm back in the west of Ireland in winter and drinking coconut water and pineapples and all that, it's kind of a little bit out of sync. You want to have more earthy root vegetables like sweet and parsnips and carrots and mm. salsify and all them kind of things. Um, but for the average person, like, okay, for, for myself, I'm kind of forced to go to your villa markets and your Tesco's. But for, for you, I'm, are, are you buying everything from the farms? Are you going to, are you still going to the, the corporate grocery stores? Yeah, grocery stores are great, you know, <laughs> yeah. Even if you don't know where it's coming from? You, sometimes you got to trust. And that's the thing, you can't be 100% perfect. Yeah. We can't get everything 100% organic. We can't know exactly where everything is coming from. Sometimes we have to trust the corporate businesses, the supermarkets and that. And Are then, you worried about the pesticides on that uh, side? Sometimes, yeah. There's certain things I don't eat, like grapes. I don't eat a lot of apples because I know they're very high in pesticides. Okay. So I avoid them ones mostly. Uh, tomatoes as well have a lot of pesticides. Um, so I do try to avoid certain things like that. But then you got to trust your own immune system as well. And if you freak out and worry too much about having everything organic, you just drive yourself crazy. Yeah. So I'm confident in that, like, just constantly investing in my own immune system. I see it as investment. Everything we choose to eat is an investment. And I, I trust my immune system, you know, by feeding it what it needs and by feeling good. That's, it is, the, well, because the gut is um, the quality of the mind. This is where we produce our, I believe, our serotonin it's from all, the gut. It's all linked. A gut, yeah. you know, you have a gut feeling. It's like another brain. Yeah. You know, it's, yeah. and everything, you know, digestion starts in the gut. And think about it. If we're like eating a huge meal and it's not digested properly, it just gets all clogged up and it slows everything down. And then, you know, if there's a lot of meat and fish and dairy products, like which are secre secretions from animals, if they're yeah. all like logged in your system, you know, it slows you down. It doesn't make you feel good. You get this inflammation, inflammation. you get this belly. You yeah, kinda it slows you down. You feel uh, very lethargic the next day. You can, yeah. Mm. But I th the way I see it with plants, you know, they're, it's, you know, they're, there's this life force energy you get from them. And it's, you know, stuff you buy at Villa Market and Macro and all, you know, fruits and vegetables and, Mm -hmm. nuts and seeds and I do a lot of sprouting as well sprouting seeds and sprouting nuts they or not sprouting nuts but sprouting seeds where you just activate them you bring them to life uh, you can actually buy them in the supermarket you can buy too. the seeds alfalfa, here alfalfa alfalfa, alfalfa sprouts yeah. yeah and sunflower seed sprouts and now is, is that a myth where some of these uh, sprouts let's say uh, bean sprouts it's a popular in Asian dishes especially like yeah. uh, in Japan like teppanyaki they'll use the bean sprout right yeah. Is, is that a myth that these are high in estrogen and you need to be careful as a male to not take too many plants that are high in estrogen, such as tofu? Because it, I heard it can uh, lead to things like dementia. And it's more of an issue for older men in Hong Kong and China because they eat a lot of tofu in the diet that is high in estrogen. That mm. could be an issue. Have you heard anything about yeah, that? I've heard, I've heard a lot about that. Um, and the thing is, that's... Part of the problem nowadays, you hear a lot of everything about different things and you ha you don't know who to believe or what to believe. Exactly. So I'm not going to comment on whether that's right or wrong or go into too much detail on that particular thing, but there is a lot of conflicting information online and you've always got to see through who's actually sponsoring and promoting that research. Yeah. Because a lot of this can be done by the dairy industry to like attack tofu sales. You know, so I'm just saying, I'm just putting that out there as a point. That's, that's where, that's, that's my point as well is you, uh, everyone pretends to be the expert. Like, let's say on my side and I heard yeah. that and I go tell all my friends, but well, who sponsored that? Yeah. Who's and and then in five years later, you find out tofu is the greatest God's yeah. gift to, to man. And we should have been yeah. eating it this whole time. Again, you, I just, I'm always careful about handing out specific information like that because yeah. that's, you know, you, you're advising people on, on serious stuff here, you know, and I, there's so much people online now, like 
you can do a nutrition course online and you're a qualified nutritionist in two weeks and then you start, say, go on a grapefruit diet for two weeks and you'll, like, get rid of all this flab. And yeah. there's so much, like, rubbish out there, you know. So you really got to be careful on who to believe out there and where it's coming from. But in relation to tofu, you know, it does depend on, just as an example, like... What brand made the tofu? Where are the soybeans from? Are they genetically modified? Are they organic? Yeah. How fresh is the tofu? You can have all different ingredients added in and sweeteners and stabilizers and all that. So, well, with the state of the world and, and, and understanding what's good for you, what's bad for you, I mean, there's a certain point where you're just going to blow your brains out because there's yeah, too much damn information. Yeah, yeah too much overload. Or it's sometimes it's good, information overload. And sometimes good to step away from that and really, you know, just listen to how you feel after you eat something. Yeah. Listen to how your body, like after you eat a meal, like do you feel tired? Do you feel energized? Just note, like mentally take a note of that. That's why I really think mindful eating is vital. And that's one thing I do myself and really promote people to do. Mm. When you're eating a meal, don't be sitting there scrolling on your phone or checking emails because you're not really paying attention to the flavor of the food, to how many times you chew it, to how it's tasting. And, you know, you're kind of, you're taking the attention away from your digestion. Whereas you take away your devices and focus on what you're eating. Smell it, taste it, chew it, enjoy it, savor it, be grateful for it. And taking that time out then and allowing for digestion, allowing 10, 15 minutes for digestion. Mm -hmm. And then you can kind of tune into how you're feeling after that. And that's much greater impact, I believe, for everyone's ongoing journey in healthy eating rather than seeing what kind of a study has been done by someone and wondering whether or not to believe. Yeah, it's, you're not sure where the information's coming from as well. Then, it creates a lot of fear as well in people. You know? Then you're going to go down a rabbit hole for... Jim, and what are your thoughts about fasting? Fasting, I did it myself actually in that time in Thailand. I used to do 24-hour fasting. And I remember a guy who run the cafe, a Scottish guy, he's lived out there for years, and he told me he did 24-hour fasting once a week. He said he feels incredible, and he was about 55 years old, and he looked about 35. I thought, okay, I'll try it. And I felt brilliant after it. Mm -hmm. 24 hour fast. So eat dinner at 7 p.m. You know, you shouldn't eat too late at night anyways. So eat dinner at six or seven. You don't eat anything for the rest of the evening. You wake up in the morning. You don't eat breakfast or lunch. And there's a big difference between not eating and fasting and skipping meals. That's a very fine line. Um, you miss breakfast and you miss lunch, but you take a day off, take time off. Like you, when you're fasting, you shouldn't be doing anything too laborious or training or exercising and use that time to like, you know, just relax, do some meditation, do relaxation, read a book. And what I found from doing that fasting is like, it made me appreciate food so much more because when I'd start cooking dinner, then ready to eat at seven o'clock, yeah. you know, you smell the food so much better. You're like building up this anticipation. The digestive system is like getting excited and ready. And it's really good to give the digestive system a rest. Uh, for me, it worked for 24 hours. It just has a chance to clean out, relax. And you do become much more energized because the digestive system takes so much energy. Yeah. It's got to take food from its raw form and turn it into cells. Yeah. <laughs> it's busy. So if we can allow it to rest for a period of time, and then when we break the fast, like eating something slowly and enjoying it and something like light, like soups or a broth um, and not overeating, it's very important how you break the fast. So for me personally, it really worked um, doing a 24-hour fast about once a month. And I do and that. you still do it once not, a month? Not religiously every month, but maybe every three months. Okay. I find I don't need it as much now. But at that time, I did need a lot of detox and I find it really benefited me then. Now I think the problem is with fasting is there's so many different ways of doing it. There's so many apps for intermittent fasting. Yeah. There's so many promises of this is how much weight you're going to lose. 
And I think there's a very fine line between fasting and starvation. And pseudoscience. Yeah. yeah. And it's, it affects everyone differently. You know, relying upon an app to tell you when to eat. Yeah, it's, I mean, you can pretty much just do it yourself. It's not rocket science, right? Just no. it's, it's a determination. I fast, uh, I've been doing it for three years, but now I'm comfortable doing it. So like, yeah. I'll try to stop eating at like six or seven and then I won't eat my first meal till 12. Yeah. But I've been doing it so long that like when I wake up in the morning, I'm, I'm still not even hungry at 1 p.m. Yeah. And I, I kind of did that just, it was more so um, I could run in the morning and kind of go to the gym and then get that exercise out of the way and then have the reward of something yeah. to eat. I find for me, it works well, but yeah. again, everybody's different. Everybody's different. That's yeah. This, yeah. It's finding out what works. Um, and we do fast every night, you know, when we eat breakfast, breakfast is breaking the fast. Yeah. So we fast every night when we sleep. That's when our body is detoxing and everything. So I think you're, the way you fast, you know, is from <clears> a few hours before you go to bed to a few hours after you wake up. That's that's good. You know? yeah, I mean, everyone's still fasting 12 hours a day, usually regardless. Like yeah. it's, that's, that's not a yeah. difficult task. I think I'm at like 16. Yeah. So w when you, speaking of, of breakfast, you're talking about enjoying the meal, but if you're eating porridge 300 out of 360 days a, week, a year, how does that, how there's, does a lot, that there's, work? A lot, there's a lot of uh, variations. I'd actually done a whole business plan to open a porridge restaurant after discovering a few in Copenhagen a few years ago, um, a porridge restaurant called Grod, and they have like a whole restaurant full of porridges. With porridge, you can have oats, rye, barley, quinoa, teff, amaranth. You can have... And you're switching it up every day? Switch it up. Not every day, but like throughout the week, I'll have... Sometimes I'll have like... Um, you know, I always have a different combination of different grains. So whether it's buckwheat or sometimes quinoa, sometimes I've had hot, sometimes cold, and then different toppings, depending on what uh, fruits are in season or what's available. I'll have different fruits. I'll have a different nut butter or a tahini butter, mm -hmm. and then different nuts and seeds. And mix this... As you're cooking it in the pot, and you just serve it pot? on top. On top, I always soak my oats overnight. Okay. By soaking them, you kind of activate the uh, fermentation process a little bit, and you make the grains a little bit more digestible. So it's a big aspect, a big important part for cooking grains is that they need to be like, depending on the grain, they need to be soaked, or they need to be sprouted, or they need to be like well cooked so that they're more digestible. And the more easily digestible something is, the more nutrition and we can assimilate from it and everything. And then you're boiling it in the morning. This must take yeah. quite some time because it's not processed oats. I mean, they're, they're, they're just they're rolled wrong. oats. So rolled oats. is it take, is it taking, um, it like five, 10 minutes. Like that's I, it? I soak it in a pot, yep. put the water and the oats and I put in a tablespoon of chia seeds too. Yeah. About ratio of five oat to one chia seed. Cause then with the combination of oat and chia, you've got a good, Omega. A good mix of protein, omega combination that keeps me full until now. Like I haven't had any, like it's what, three, 4 PM now. I had a couple of bananas in between, but it's kept me going. Yeah. Um, okay, you're getting your fiber from that as well. Fiber it's very, from that. Yeah. And then the oats are a magic, they're a superpower. Like the, one of the best ingredients yeah. in the world. They just balance all your blood sugar and your energy. And when you have them as the base of your... It's a heavy meal. Yeah, yeah. it's like it's can get, it can get you right through the day. Are, are you are you eating early in the morning? Are you waiting till I, lunch? About an hour after my morning routine, about okay. an hour after it just works for me now. Usually I used to train before exercise. I used to like have a banana, go train and then have breakfast, but now I train in the evening. So again, it's like going with the seasons. You have to, we're always changing routine. and mm -hmm. um, But it is always good. I think it's good to have a routine as well because then your digestive system gets used to it. I eat at the same time. Yeah, so you don't want, you don't want to confuse it. And, yeah, that yeah, makes sense. Yeah, I get used to it because you know, I go to the toilet at the same time as yeah. well, which is an important part of digestion, yeah. you know. What goes in must come out. 
getting it out is as important as well. So I think tuning into what's coming out of her body is very important as well. And how many times the smell that, you know, all that is quite important yeah. too, because they're, they're like guidelines. If something's very wrong or consistency is wrong or something like that, it's a, it's a sign that you're eating mm -hmm. the wrong thing or something else is wrong. So it's a good telltale to see if like your immune system's okay, your body's okay. Maybe you could be potentially sick and you don't even know it. Yeah. Um, what are your thoughts? See what I do with chia seeds and flax seeds is I, I, uh, I use a coffee grinder and I turn them into powder. Yeah. yeah. I just find like it's better for digestion. Yeah. Is that right? Or is that wrong? Definitely. Yeah. It definitely for chia seed and flax in particular. Flax. So flax and chia, I have them both. I buy them raw Well, yeah. they're, they're cooked, I guess, right? Or well, they're not cooked, like they're milled, they're, milled. Okay, they're milled. And yeah. then I immediately I grind them into the powders yeah. and I'll put them in oatmeal or I'll put them into a into like um, maybe a mango shake, a protein shake, whatever, yeah. um, just to get the fiber, to add the fiber in. And um, I find, well, what I was understanding is better for digestion, digestion. So at least you get the whole, uh, all the nutrients of that. Yeah. Is that true or yeah yeah absolutely yeah there is good fiber good omega fats in chia and flax and grinding them is better because yeah. then they um you can digest them much easier it activates it more activates or? it yeah chia and flax in particular is so high protein as well that they you know if you don't soak them they they absorb a lot of water they absorb a lot of liquid so if you just eat a tablespoon mm. of them raw what they're doing is absorbing all the digestive juices as they go down and it's not particularly good so grinding them down and incorporating them into... Do you do that on your side or do you soak them? I soak them soak overnight, them. yeah. Yeah, because then the yeah. chia turns into almost like a gel. gelatin. Yeah. yeah. So I'll put like uh, about 500 ml of water, 100 gram of oats, and just like a tablespoon or two of, mm. of chia seeds in, in the water overnight. And then just cook it very slow, top it up with water if needs be, then finish it with uh, a nice plant milk. And what, what type would you use an almond milk or uh, you can again be careful with the supplier the brand because a lot of hidden sugars in them now I do I've done a master class recently on plant milks and I'm working on an online course on plant milks because I think it is a very simple thing to do at home if you have some chia seeds or walnuts or any nut or any cashews seed. or cashews are great yeah. yeah cashews and macadamia you can make a milk out of and you don't need to pass you it make through a cheese a bag. from it as well make cheese from it yeah. too yeah Plant milk is very easy to make at home and very cost effective too. Yeah. And you don't put any sweeteners or additives in them. So I'll always have a homemade plant milk at home. Yeah, I've recipe. made it before using like uh, probiotics and cashews. This was maybe three years ago. Once. Yeah. <laughs> I don't well, know what happened. It's so simple. I know. I, I think I got lazy. I'm not, I, I actually, I try to stay away from dairy. I don't think I didn't, I didn't have dairy for like uh, a couple of years. Yeah, pizza here or there, but I wouldn't buy cheese or, yeah. or milk and put it in the house because if I bought cheese, it wouldn't last the night. So yeah, I it's like cheese. Yeah, it's not, well, you're Irish, though, <laughs> so, right? So I didn't yeah. let it in the house. But um, yeah, I, I tried, I made a cashew cheese before and then I used uh, uh, probiotics with the grinding the cashews, letting it soak, did the whole, the whole thing. And I forget what I used it for the fermentation. Can't recall some beyond the probiotics, something to give it more of that sour taste. Okay. Um, I can't think off the top of my head, but I was something for the fermentation side as well. Yeah. Um, I, I, I guess this is more like a little bit of a Q and a at this point <laughs> as we, we run through some information. Um, I heard from, uh, friends up in Chiang Mai that are, um, doing different products for, uh, 
this industry. I, I just don't want to give away their details. That's why yeah. I'm working with them. But anyways. Secrets. Yeah, it's a bit of a secret. So <laughs> Trade secret. Yeah, trade secret. So, and they were telling me that for the Ayurveda diet, what's yeah. important is if you eat meat and fruit, you should never eat them at the same time. Meaning like eat your fruit in the morning. And if you eat meat, eat that like three, four hours later. Yeah. Uh, and the reason for that is because in your stomach, your stomach is using two different enzymes to digest. It's a different en enzyme to digest your, your fruit. It's a different enzyme to digest your meat and probably the same enzyme to digest any plant-based stuff as well. Yeah. So they said, you need to be very careful. If you're to eat, if you need to eat the fruit in the morning and you can eat the meat later, but let's say at nighttime you had a steak and then immediately after you ate a bunch of watermelon, yeah. what happens? It can lead yeah. to inflammation and, and even bloating and gassing because yeah. all you're doing is you've, Diary. Yeah. Yeah, you've dropped the meat in your belly and now you're dropping fruit on top and then yeah. it begins to uh, ferment. Is yeah. that true? Yeah. Yeah. That's what I understand as well. Um, it comes back to how we eat. Sometimes we don't know these things, you know, um, and from an Ayurvedic approach, that is a food combination. There's many different types of food and they act differently. And that's why it's so important to chew our food as well, because as we're chewing our food, our digestive system is, is determining what food we're eating. And then they're getting them digestive enzymes ready mm. to digest the food that's coming in. So you're confusing your, your digestive enzymes by not chewing your food enough. Yeah. And then it's not broken down enough. So your stomach has to work harder to break it down. So you use more energy. Okay. So think of it like you've got a big soup going on in your stomach. If you just chew once or twice and put it down, it's got to, it's going to be all bulky and your, your digestive, digestive system will have to work extra hard to digest. If you do the work with what our teeth were invented for, for chewing and breaking it all down, especially with meat because it's very fibrous and takes a lot of digestion. So the more you chew it, two points, your uh, stomach is getting the digestive enzymes ready mm -hmm. because it knows what foods are coming. It can tune into that. And then also it's just broken down more so it can get all assimilated much easily. Mm. So very important. Yeah, that, no, that, make, that makes sense. I've heard about the chewing part, but I always thought it was kind of a myth from uh, yeah. And then no, the with, I noticed it myself. I don't eat melon. In be, I only eat melon in between meal because I notice myself, if I do, if I have done it before, you'll notice like food comes yeah. out pretty quick out so the other end. So you take a little bit of a break before. Fruit in between meals. Yeah. In between meals yeah. is best because it, it digests much faster than mm. meat as well. So it's better to just like, separated and then it all comes back to as well just eating you know less is more whereas if you sit at a table with like a huge meal it's just you know that christmas day dinner that thanksgiving day dinner feeling when you just yeah. sit around you've eaten too much you know that puts a huge amount of stress on the whole digestive system so eating less mm -hmm. less is more and eating slowly it takes about 15 minutes for our our stomach to tell our mind that we're full and if we're not eating mindfully we tend to overeat all the time and if that's our habit day in, day out, well, then all of a sudden we're wondering why, why we're so big, why we've got digestive problems and all that. I'll keep that in mind. I'll, I put, think I put on a kg or two, but uh, no, it's, yeah, from when you're overeating, I always try to find just to eat till I feel like mm. I'm 70% full. It's fine. It takes discipline really, because yeah. when food tastes so good, it's hard to stop. Yeah. It's hard to stop really. Because even on a plant-based diet, even on as a well. plant-based diet, yeah, because yeah, food tastes so good, and you're like you're eating it, you're hungry, but then, you know, it it takes discipline, and I think eating it, it does take a certain discipline every day. Mm -hmm. For me, recently, like I stopped drinking coffee. I loved it. I like coffee addiction for years, uh, drinking three, four cups a day, 
for so long. I used to enjoy everything about it, the ritual, the smell, the taste and everything. So then throughout um, a series of events, anyways, I decided I'd stop it. And I think it's good to stop something you enjoy because it, it exercises that muscle for desire in not giving into it. And I think with food, we need that because we're faced with so much marketing and clever design and marketing to get us to eat their product. Yeah. You know, eat for pleasure. But if we get that, you know, that decision-making muscle for managing what decisions we make around food, it's powerful. Being able to say no and walk away. Many people can't say no. That's the, that's the self-discipline there. It's but very that, difficult. That takes exercise, yeah. you know, and I find in the morning, you know, our decision-making process is much better. We make better decisions generally in the morning, but then coming into the evening, our decision-making process is kind of a bit fatigued mm -hmm. and we end up making worse decisions, whether it's the pizza or the burger or the five, or the five beers or whatever. That's why every but day. We're all, but we're all human. And, you know, I still eat pizza, no cheese on top, but I still eat pizza, I still have a beer every now and then. But I think we do all need to have that, to develop that muscle, that mental muscle for making the right decisions around food. Because if we allow other marketing companies to manipulate us into what to eat for their mm. profit, you know, and our health, we're losing for it. So I think it, we need that. Yeah, and you need world. to also do your own research and educate yourself, which mm -hmm. is hard when you're limited on time. People get busy. And like you yeah. said, with mental fatigue after a long day of working, yeah. it's hard to, you know, go down that road. It's much easier to turn on the Netflix, to turn on YouTube, yeah. to put on, you know, this uh, simple content to digest. Mm. It's uh, very difficult to educate yourself after a long, hard day. Yeah hard day of work. Even yeah. for, for someone like myself, it's after work. I wake up eight in the morning. I'm going to work all day and all right, 5 PM I'm going to the gym yeah. and then 5 PM hits and you're like, Oh, you were, you were, you were young. You were full of hope at 8 AM. And yeah. now, I know. now what's happening? Happens to me too. Every second day. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I was so, I was full of dreams and what happened here? Uh, yeah. So there's one part of, of the podcast that we forgot to discuss and we wanted to kind of piece it all together from uh, your journey. And, and that is, um, how did you make the decision to actually come move to Phuket? What were you doing here um, at that time? And what are you doing now? Okay, so it all happened by pure synchronicity ending up here in Phuket. Um, I was based back in the Cotswolds and working there and I had a good network built up and business is good and everything was, everything was ticking over nicely. And then I had a one month consultancy project came up here in Phuket, at Tanya Pura, uh, through, and, through actually an Ayurvedic doctor I'd met out in Shanghai on a different project. Uh, so we kind of formed a connection there and then introduced me to the Tanya Pura team. So I came out for a one-month consultancy project. And I guess, oh, let's uh, just quickly explain yeah. what Tanya Pura is, because most okay. people probably might not Tanya know. Tanya Pura is a sporting paradise. It's um, a pure sport mecca here on the island of Phuket, surrounded by a national park, it's an Olympic training facility with swimming pools, soccer pitches, Muay Thai, yoga, tennis, beach volleyball, loads of stuff. Plus it's an a, international school, international pretty school much beside it, yeah. on campus as well. So yeah. it's an absolutely incredible place. I never knew a place like it existed until I got here and completely blown away and fell in love. And with it's, it's a world-class facility world as class. well. World-class. We used yeah. to have the Canadian swimmers, the Hungarian swimmers, a lot of Olympic teams that come and station themselves here and train in the uh, tropical climate and then, you know, climatize yeah. them for the Olympics and so on. So incredible place. Okay. So let's continue yeah. just to, so, and then I, uh, I came out for a one month project, you know, Oh wait, wait, Hey, Tanya Para, free membership. <laughs> let's go. 
<laughs> yeah, <joking>. I <laughs> And um, that one month project, you know, I do. I did a lot of menu development uh, over the last few years and helping places build healthier recipes, help healthier menus. So it came out for one month. We started to fall in love with each other, the whole place and the team and everything. And that turned into a three-month consultancy and then an opportunity came. And what, what year was that when you arrived? That was just three years ago this month now. Three years, okay. Three years ago. So, so you did that, you you were doing it for about three years um, at Tenureport. Stri I've strictly, strictly. Yeah, I've been there. I did two, two and a half years at Tanakura. Okay. Uh, yeah. Started off as a consultant and then that position uh, grew into a director of culinary development. So I was over the whole F&B department and overseeing all the restaurant, uh, all the food at the UWC school as well. Yeah. So quite an incredible experience. We'd have uh, we had three restaurants and we had, we about, do about 2,000 meals a day, everything from Olympic athletes to five-year-old kids. And this was strictly, this was from your, uh, to just jump, jump back. I feel like uh, we went fast and I missed that part. It's, you had the connection that, that had a connection here and kind of, you were yeah. able to. So I did a short-term project as well, a menu development project in okay. Shanghai and Suzhou. So this is, so, so it's from the Shanghai. Okay. I yeah. understood. So it's all like my whole career has been the stepping stone. Yeah. So it's another story for another day. How yeah, I ended sure. up in Shanghai. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, teaching a team of 40 chefs who don't but speak any language. But did you pick language. up? No. No, no, no. <laughs> Didn't pick up much. I was only there for <laughs> okay, for okay. a month. Oh, okay, uh, incredible experience. A uh, nice taste of um, of the whole Chinese culture, which is incredible. Uh, made some good connections there. So then the Ayurvedic doctor I connected with there, and we were developing recipes for specific ailments on that project. He came to work here, and then he connected us with here, recommended me here. So that's how the yep. the relationship kind of um, started to come about. And then you came in here as the, the head chef. Or? I came over as a consultant. Just, just for oh, one consultant. Month, okay. One month, yeah. One okay. month project, which turned into yeah. a three-month project. The so I was going back and forth yeah. for about three or four months. And then I ended up putting all my life belongings into a shipping container somewhere in the Cotswolds. Yep. And packed my backpack and came out on a one-way ticket and took over the full-time job. And this is like 2017, 18-ish, around, yeah. around that. Yeah. And you, you, you're, you came... With family or you found just family? Myself, just, just myself. Yourself. Just yourself. Okay. But now yeah. you, you have. Yeah. I live with my girlfriend now. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And, um, so you, you were doing that for a, a few years and you jumped into this role as now, what it, was it head chef at Tenure? So not head chef. No, I was, uh, director, we, after the consultant. director of culinary development. Okay. Because uh, we went on to some Tanya Puras in China have launched since as well, but because of travel restrictions, I couldn't get out there. Yeah. I developed all the menus for them concepts. But it was originally Tanya Puras from Thailand, yeah, and then Phuket, it's spread Tanya out. Pura, Phuket, yeah. Yeah, because probably you get so many Chinese tourists here, they might have picked up the concept and brought yeah. it back home, right? Yeah. Yeah. Ah, that makes sense. Like, so, um, and, and, you're doing this for, for two and a half years. Yeah. And uh, what, what happened at the end besides the current situation, I'm assuming? Um, so I think, you know, going throughout most of my career, it tends to be two years everywhere. And that's, I think, you know, I give as much as I've got, as I've got for them two years and I've learned as much as I can for them two years. So I tend to kind of go on to my next chapter after that, not just completely leave, but kind of move on. So at this time, it was, you know, with everything happening and the reduction of uh, tourists coming in and so on, uh, I was reducing my team and I t decided to reduce myself from the team. Mm. If I take myself out of the team, I can save the payroll for five or six of my team. Yeah. So it kind of became a natural kind of progression just to kind of as, as, um, as it got quieter around the island and so on. But I, I was kind of really looking forward to the opportunity then to going back into launching my own business again. Yeah. 
which I'd started the Holistic Chef six years ago after I came back from Thailand. And then that kind of took a pause and now you're... And that took a pause while I was at Tanya Pura. Still always develop at Tanya Pura. I was working on the same core values and what I do. So it's kind of still part of the development. So it's quite interesting how my Holistic Chef adventure began in Northern Thailand and back to England and USA and China. And then it came back to South Thailand here again. So now here I am, the Holistic Chef back yeah. in the South of Thailand, kind of come full circle. And what does that in, what does that entail for people who might not be aware? Um, You're explaining before it's kind of like an online learning program. Yeah. So with restrictions now, obviously I'm limited with travel. So my whole business kind of strategy has had to pivot. So pivot online is where yeah. we've gone, which a lot of people have. But it's opened up other opportunities. I've I've launched a virtual cooking school, so you can check it out. I'll uh, share the link later. And what is that? Yeah, what is that all about? So, and how can people find you on that? Uh, virtual Cooking School. So Holistic Chef Academy is my website. If you go on there, you'll find links to everywhere. So Virtual Cookery School is where I have a, a load of classes that I host at different times of the week. And you can tune in live. I send out all the recipes before. So you can get everything ready and cook along with me. Or if you're not in the right time zone, if it's in the middle of the night where it is in some parts, uh, you can catch the recording. So all the class cooking classes go to on demand. And people, these are members that sign up and they yeah. pay a monthly fee or? Yeah, you can sign up for a monthly subscription or an annual subscription, or you can just buy the single on demand classes or the single classes. So mm. It's kind of something to fit everybody. Um, so at least if you want a taste to see, yeah. no pun intended, you want a taste to see what's yeah, going taste. on. It's yeah. a free seven day trial. So you can tune in yeah. if you like it. It's great. Like the idea behind it, always behind what I do is education. For me, learning always, I'm always learning, but also passing on the knowledge I've learned to improve people's lives. So yep. that's really the core basis of my motivation behind the Holistic Chef Academy is to share knowledge of sustenance and of integrity that I think can benefit you in your cooking in the kitchen and your approach to healthier food. And what else can be taught on on this website? Is it like you said, the Ayurveda, are you showing the holistic side, like not just the cooking side, but also the yeah. life lifestyle, maybe uh, um, uh, education on the nutrition? What else can people find on there? So I do, um, I do live cooking classes. So over the last 10 weeks, I've done a different country each week. So I'll pick different classic recipes from each country. We've gone to Mexico, Italy, Middle East, India, uh, done all different countries. And I'll do three dishes from that country that are 100% mm. plant-based and talk a little bit about what ingredients they use in that country and like uh, introduce to new ingredients and new recipes you can make at home. They're all designed around recipes that you can make at home that are affordable, that are easy enough to make and that are delicious. And it's besides just learning how to cook a recipe, there's the whole educational factor yeah, to it, yeah, I throw it in during little, the class. Yeah, I throw in little impromptu nuggets of technique that when you get a written recipe, you don't always see these little hidden techniques. But when I'm doing a live cooking class, I can talk about the little techniques more. So I feel there's a good way of imparting knowledge. Yeah. Can your audience uh, uh, engage with you live as things yeah, are going we on? Have, it's like us all hosted by a Zoom. So we do a live question and answer after. And then we have a Facebook group where people share their recipes and like any questions like, is my sauerkraut ready yet kind of thing. And, you know, mm. we answer all them questions in the group. And then during the class we do, uh, you can text in the question as you go just so like we keep the flow of the class going yep. and everyone's mic is muted. Yeah, so you're can, not, you're not stopping. I can see yeah. people in three different continents cooking on the <clears> screen <throat> and I'm cooking along. It's, yeah. it's very interesting. And for me as a teacher, like an educator, it's, it's a new experience for me too. Cause I'm used to having everyone in a class mm -hmm. and then it's much more, you know, engaging. You see how people are getting it and you show them. So now teaching in this virtual environment is it's, um, it's a different form of communication, but it also opens up 
opportunities for me to reach people that I wouldn't have been able to reach otherwise. Um, but ongoing, I will have a cookery school where you can actually come cook and cook on <laughs> cook online, or you'll make it cook, more. Cook, uh, like you'll do a, it in a, a bricks and mortar cooking in, school in Phuket. Or I don't know yet. Okay. It, I hopefully uh, Phuket maybe. Yeah, Galway. it's hard. It's, too, it's a bit too early to. Um, but this is the your concept for yeah, the future. Yeah, but what I'm doing is building the curriculum. Over the last five years, I've yeah. been building curriculums, and that's my IP. And that curriculum, I can teach anywhere. I can rent a cookery school in Galway and be there for the month of the year, mm -hmm. and teach people who want to come there. Then I can come out here for another month and run the curriculums out here. So I see it as a very kind of fluid way of of moving around and reaching more people. So having the online connection is good as well, but I'm also like, I love, you know, the human interaction face to face and you can't, you can't. Yeah. And that, you, you know. don't want to, you'll miss that or you'll lose that. And yeah, and so it's yeah. an important part so of that's where of, it's going, you know, and it's good now that I have the time to focus online and fine tune the curriculums and test it and everything. But ultimately, you know, it will lead to a, a bring some mortar cooking you, school. So that, that, that's kind of the, the end goal. You can, you can keep this going online and, when stuff comes back to normal, whenever that is, you'll, you'll, your next move is yeah. this bricks and mortar. Yeah. It's just now school. it's too much, yeah, too yeah. much, too much uncertainty. Yeah. Yeah. And then I launched a recipe blog as well. Never thought I'd become a recipe yeah. blogger, but I can officially put a recipe blogger where, where on my can LinkedIn we find profile that? now. Holisticchefacademy.com. And is, it's, it's the same website or yeah, kind the same of a website. So I have everything. If you go to the holisticchefacademy.com, everything will, you can go off to the virtual cookery school. I'm launching a meal planner service in a couple of months. I'm launching um, a four, uh, behind the scenes membership for industry professionals as well to access my 2000 recipes that I've, yep. that I'll consolidate into different menus. And everything is uh, strictly plant-based. hundred percent plant-based. Yeah. Um, I use a little bit of honey sometimes. I know some vegans do, some don't. And now the thing is why I don't use the word vegan is because for me, plant-based is about what we are eating. It's about whole food, plant-based food foods that come from the earth. Veganism yeah. is, it goes a bit deeper and it's more, there's other things involved like leather and like, you know, other, like there's a lot more detail. And I, I not that I'm a for or against that. I just don't want to jump into that. I'm focusing yeah. more on the food and the celebration of food and what we can eat rather than like what we cannot eat. And the holistic approach. Yeah, the of more that. holistic approach. And yeah. technically you can go for a vegan meal at McDonald's and eat some chips and a, and a vegan burger. Yeah, but how, what is well, it? Yeah, and that's not like disrespecting veganism in any way. Like I think there's a huge amount of positives from veganism, but it also causes a lot of debate and a lot of conflict and a lot of that. And I just want to stay away from that. And keeping that out of the conversation, focusing focus on the on food. whole food, plant-based yeah. ingredients that are good for you, they're good for the environment and they taste good. Which is, which I think is important because even for someone like myself, I visited places like pie and you, you get more options for vegan food or plant-based food, but it's done well. Yeah. But I'm not going to do it here because I don't know how. Yeah. And it, it gets more complicated. So that, yeah, it would be interesting yeah. or something yeah. to it check out. It is hard to do, to do plant-based food well. You know, there is a different, a new way of looking at it. And yeah. that's behind what I want to do with the virtual cooking school and the academy is to introduce people to the new techniques and the new ingredients and the combinations so that, you know, it's not rocket science, but you just need to see it. But also and understand on the it. timing as well. And I the mean, timing, yeah. I think I, I, I'm a good enough cook myself, but understanding that, 
for example, if you're cooking a simple, let's say a stir fry, when do your mushrooms go in? When yeah. do your green, yeah. when do your peppers go in? It's, yeah. it's gotta be time. Timing. When do your carrots go? And I talk yeah. about all that in my classes. It's yeah. all about timing. Yeah. And I always say cooking is easy. Otherwise it just comes <laughs> out in a mush. <laughs> cooking is actually easy. It's the accumulation yeah. of everything at the one time. That's the challenge. Making sure we have the ingredients and then when to add them. That's the challenge, the timing. Yeah. I always reiterate that, the organization, the timing. And it's all about finding that flow in the kitchen. Yeah. You're at home cooking and you can have the music on, have that time, one or two hours, have your ingredients ready. You can tune out from everything else, get rid of your phone and just get in that flow in the kitchen and make your yeah, own it's food. Gonna, he, he, he watches me do it. Because I, I can cook a whole meal and when it's done, the dishes are done. Like I've timed it all at the same yeah, time. Yeah. He's like, how the hell do you do that? I'm like, But I've been doing, I've been cooking like, for myself since I was like 16 plus I did some work in a kitchen. Yeah. I mean, I'm definitely not a chef, but it's finding that flow and yeah. like I can have, you know, four pans going, cooking something in the oven and like the whole dish, I could have five dishes come together and at the end yeah. the dishes are clean. It's yeah. cause I'm doing it as I'm going. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well on that note, we've covered a lot. We probably hit plus two hours. So, um, Let's let's recap every where what you where people can find you in terms of I I think uh, you can plug uh, your Instagram and your website and your YouTube and there's yeah. your camera. So Holistic Chef Academy, get on there. It's uh, www.holisticchefacademy.com. So that's my central database. It's a free recipe website. I've got about 70 recipes published on there. I've got another 1,500 recipes to publish. There's only so many hours in the day, so they're gradually coming. Uh, one after another. So stay, so tune in for them. There's a subscriber button there. You'll find it around the website. I send out a newsletter every week of a recipe of the week and a little nugget of um, inspiration around nutrition or lifestyle. Um, so tune into them areas and I think subscribe, check in on the recipes. Uh, you'll find links to YouTube and Instagram on the website. I'm on Instagram a little bit, just sharing day-to-day -day adventures in Phuket and the different markets I go to and crazy things I'm cooking like banana blossom and bamboos. So, um, yeah, tune in and um, hope to um, join me on the adventure and hopefully I can support you on your way to a healthier and happier eating and cooking lifestyle. If you enjoyed this podcast and you'd like to watch the full video on YouTube, come visit our channel, Fruiting Body Podcast. We can also be found on Instagram at Fruiting Body Podcast. Please be sure to share and follow this podcast with friends and family. Thank you very much.